Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Starts now. Thank goodness it is Friday, April 5th, and live from the Chicago Reader's Suntime Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, it's another Romano Rundown with Sun-Times editor Romana Hussein. We welcome political strategist Joanna Klonsky and its Roosevelt University professor and author, David Ferris. And now your host, the man who loves playing air <laughs> organ. You should see it, guys. Hey. Chicago Reader columnist. Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Yes Man Friday. And here's why. Wait, Yes Man or Yes Ma'am? M-A-N as in Nancy. All right. Yes Man Friday. And here's why. So, for the last few weeks, I've been so utterly obsessed with our mayoral election that I almost forgot about one Donald John Trump. You remember him, Dees. If you have any windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75% in value. Uh. And they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? (laughs) (laughs) That guy? Oh, yeah, that guy. You know, (laughs) our president. Our president, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, I got a reminder, not just with that great clip that Dee loves to play, and I cannot hear enough. Our president, ladies and gentlemen, front page of the New York Times. You see that, listeners? That mm. is a newspaper. All right. Trump favors pizza. Pizza? pizza? <laughs> he favors pizza? Pizza magnet for federal board. Yeah, Herman Cain. My world's coming together now. All right. He wants to nominate Herman Cain to the Federal Reserve Board. And this means, folks, I'm going to have to do a mini, mini deep dive. All right, just a mini deep dive here, okay? So the Federal Reserve Board is a board of bankers and economists and other big shots nominated by the president and approved by the Senate, and they generally regulate the economy by controlling interest rates. The higher the interest rates, the more money it costs to borrow money, so it kind of slows the economy because it's going to cost you more money to buy a house or buy a car, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. The lower their interest rates, the more it speeds up the economy because money's cheaper, right? All right, it's basic. Uh, generally, conservatives want the uh, president to control, to put, the, excuse me, the Federal Reserve Board to have higher interest rates to sort of control the economy a little bit. And low. They say they do it for inflation, but I kind of think it's because they're all bankers, D, and they want more money. Anyway, they, I'm just telling you what they say. Herman Cain is, this is important to remember this, is generally uh, of an inflation hawk. And he's always advocated that you should uh, have higher interest rates to control uh, the inflation. Inflation hawk. Remember that anyway. Yeah, but I bet his pizza parties are fantastic. (laughs) Donald John Trump, on the other hand, is now president of the United States, and he wants a go-go economy, a robust economy, so he could say, I'm the man. All right? Under me, there's been economic robust 
soaring everything. The world is good. Overlook the fact that we're about to have an ecological destruction and annihilation of the planet as we know it due to climate change. Just think about the roaring economy, okay? So he wants the Federal Reserve Board to uh, keep those interest rates low, keep that economy going strong. Herman Cain, you would think, would be in favor of raising the interest rates because, remember, he said he's an inflation hawk. But, of course, Herman Cain is also a political animal. If you recall, Dr. D, he ran for president in 2012. And the Republican Prime, <laughs> remember his campaign, 999? You remember that one, D? Yeah. 999? He's going to call for steady tax rates of uh, 9%. Uh, talk about regressive taxation. Everybody's going to pay the same 9% tax rate on income taxes, on business taxes, and on national sales tax. 999. He really just made it so simple and easy to understand. Very similar to Donald Trump. His campaign was eventually uh, ended when all these stories emerged of sexual harassment charges. Something else he seems to have in common with Donald John Trump on. Anyway, Donald Trump wants to put Herman Cain uh, on the Federal Reserve Board. He wants to have a rubber stamper on the Federal Reserve Board. Now, you think this is funny? Why would he want uh, an inflation hawk on the Federal Reserve Board if he wants the Federal Reserve Board to go in the opposite direction and lower interest rates. Well, D, the answer is this. With a new president, and Herman Cain's doing one of those famous political evolutions we hear so much about. You know about those evolutions? Oh, remember, yeah. remember Barack Obama had an evolution on gay marriage? First he was for it. Then he was against it. Then when he was about to leave office, he was for it again, all right? I flip. I flop. And I flipped again. And generally, a political evolution is when a politician puts his or her finger to the air and sees which way the wind is blowing and figures, I better evolve so I can, uh, you know, be with the crowd. In this case, Herman Cain is evolving because he wants to get on that board and win Donald Trump's approval. It kind of reminds me, Dee, follow me on this, of that great TV show from the 60s called Bewitched. Have you ever seen Bewitched? Oh, yeah. You've seen Bewitched? Yeah, you were even yeah. born. I mean, Nick at night. Oh, like, Nick. you know, they play the old stuff still. All right, follow me, folks. In, in Bewitched, there was, uh, the lady was a witch. What was her name? Samantha. Samantha was a witch, and she could make, make her nose go back and forth, and like cats would disappear and stuff like that. She was married to Darren, who was in the advertising business, and Darren's, tight millennials. Darren's boss was Larry. Remember Larry? No. So you don't remember Larry? Larry I was I Darren's didn't watch boss. It that much. <laughs> so here's where the, it all comes together, everybody. So Darren would be making a pitch for their new campaign to the client, and so he would say what the pitch was going to be, and Larry, the boss, would goes, "I don't like it. That's terrible." And then the client would say. I think it's pretty good. And immediately, Larry would go, you know what? I think he's right. It's a great advertising pitch. Yeah, Larry, come on. <laughs> Herman Cain is like Larry, all right? He's like, I don't believe, I don't want, I'm going to fight inflation. Donald Trump says, I don't care. And Herman Cain's like, you know what, boss? That sounds good to me. So in other words, we have Larry's in the Senate. Larry's in the White House, and now Larry's on the Federal Reserve Board. I'm telling you folks, we're becoming a country of Larry's. We got a great show today, everybody. Oh, yes, indeed. Ramana Hussein will be here for the Ramana Rundown, the weekly Ramana Rundown. It's one of the most popular features on this show. 
Romana will be coming in in about a half hour. She's got so much. I just got off the phone with her. D. She wants to talk so much about the, the election, Biden, all kinds of things on her mind. Uh, at 2 o'clock, Joanna Klonsky, political strategist, feeling pretty good. Uh, she was a, a strategist for the victorious uh, Lori Lightfoot campaign, but she'll be in here. She, we haven't had a creep report update from Joanna Klonsky. This is from the old show. She would come on all the time to talk about men behaving badly in politics, etc. And uh, so, of course, there's some Joe Biden talk. And, you know, uh, it'd be a good thing to not have a creep report if, you know, there's no creeps to report, but unfortunately there is. That is a very good point. Uh, and, um, Oh, at 2.30, the man, the myth, the legend, David Ferris. Now, folks, he is a professor of political science at Roosevelt University. He wrote the book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And one of our listeners, Bab, correct? Yep. All right, Bab, I hope you're listening out there right now, or if you're listening on the download later today, whatever. He said, Ben, you should have David Ferris on the show, because David Ferris will set you right on Nancy Pelosi, because Nancy Pelosi has to fight harder and tougher. And I've been feeling the Nancy Pelosi vibe lately. Yes, you have. So uh, maybe David Ferris will let me see the light on how uh, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats uh, in Washington should respond to one Donald John Trump. What's the best strategy heading into 2020? What's the, Who's the best candidate? What are the best themes to articulate? Et should we continue with impeachment talk? All this and more from David Ferris, uh, who's not afraid to roll up his sleeve. <laughs> and fight dirty so we got a lot of political talk ahead of us politics 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 local politics national politics all kinds of politics before we do that oh yeah before we do any of that the doctor got the news i talk about politics too yeah we have politics with the doctor oh by the way dude you keep dropping your nancy pelosi button There, goodness. All right. He loves <laughs> okay. Nancy Pelosi, guys. By the way, this button. We Nancy need, Pelosi. We need more buttons. We only have Bernie buttons. Nothing like, I love Bernie to death, but it's like only visitors to this show have been Bernie people. So Please. if you like, like if somebody is out there likes Buttigieg, bring a Buttigieg button. All right. How about that? Who is the fellow that we now? Oh, here you go. Let's see how good your short-term memory is. All, all, right. all those years of reefer catching up to you. I know. <laughs> who is the congressman who announced his uh, presidential candidacy yesterday? We talked about him. Oh, uh, Solwell. That's Eric cool. Solwell. We'll give you that, Eric Swalwell. <laughs> Swalwell, there we <laughs> From go. From California. And what's the issue he's running on? Uh, gun control. Very good. Young D, give All that right. man a button. Okay, yeah, you keep that Pelosi button. He loves Nancy Pelosi, guys. All right, it's <laughs> the middle of, Nancy Pelosi. middle of the final day of the week. Let's talk about the national news happening this afternoon. And holy crap, there's a lot of it. <laughs> First up, 20 yeah. states have filed a motion to block Donald Trump's diversion of federal money for a border wall. Good. Anything else you'd like to say about that? <laughs> I say yes. I, I, this is I really want to ask David Ferris. I'm writing this down to ask David Ferris. David Ferris. Oh, great content here. Fight guys. the border right. wall. All right? Because, no, this is basically, a, a, there's well, there's two issues here. One, it's a complete and total utter waste of money uh, to spend the money building the wall. It won't do, it won't do anything uh, on the issue of immigration. Uh, every Everybody knows that. It's just this pretense that Donald Trump is playing. Two, uh, it sends out a bad vibration, if you will, in terms of race relations and ethnic relations, basically playing to Trump's campaign to make uh, Hispanic people or Latino people evil enemies that we should fear. Uh, and uh, three, uh, there's this the whole notion of just in general resisting Donald Trump. What's the best way to resist Donald Trump? So uh, I'm going to see what David Ferris has to say 
about this issue. All right, next, White House Correspondents' Dinners. You know them. You love them. <laughs> yeah, but Donald Trump doesn't. The president is keeping the trend alive and once again will not attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yeah, instead, he's going to hold a rival rally the night of the event. Here's the quote from Trump. Quote, the dinner is so boring <laughs> and so negative that we're going to hold a very positive rally. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the White House Correspondent. I'll be honest with you, folks. First of all, I'm just like the whole notion of journalists getting all dressed up and going to a fair. I don't know. I just not. I'm not cut from that kind of cloth. So you'll be at the rally. <laughs> well, I'm not a big fan oh, of Donald Trump oh, rallies okay. either. Uh, when is that? When is the the meeting? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, it's, I think it's in April. I want to say. I, so I'll probably be watching a basketball game or something like that and trying to avoid the whole thing. But I must say this. Michelle Wolf was hilarious. What was it two years ago that she was the uh, the? It was the last year, I believe. No, um, I want to say it was 2017, and she made fun of Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Oh yeah, yeah. And so there was a fallout, and they went with somebody in 2018 who was a little more tame. That's my memory. My memory could be wrong. I know Frank is out I was there right say, Frank, now. Frank, get on. Come it, on, buddy. man. <laughs> but uh, I thought Michelle Wolf was funny for 10 trivia points. Oh God, a second <laughs> trivia point. Yeah, here we go. And I, for this. Bernie button okay. with the reefer, That's Bernie reefer. It's my button, but go who, ahead. Who was hilarious in the 90s at this roasting Bill Clinton? Oh, I mean, there's, oh, the, the, the Norm MacDonald. There you go. By the way, folks, a little secret about Dr. D. He loves Norm MacDonald. <laughs> yeah, hey, guys, send your hate mail my way. Uh, all right. Now, when it comes to the Democrats' recent demand of our president's tax returns, oh, Donnie's playing the audit card again. Donald oh, yeah. Trump continues to say he's under audit and can't release his taxes. All right, hold on. I'm writing this down to talk about with David Ferris. Okay. Tax returns should Dems press All right. Issue. What is this, Ben writing segment? Okay. All I right. say yes, press him on the issue because Donnie Trump uh, is so <laughs> full of it. That explanation, uh, I, I can't return him because I'm under audit. The, the IRS came out with a statement basically saying, yeah, it doesn't matter if you're under audit. You can still return him. Nope, can't do it. You know, it's like he said that the Mueller report exonerated me. Nope, didn't say that. Uh, he's going to say it anyway. So, for, by the way, did you see that Bernie Sanders is vowing to re uh, reveal his income tax statements? Oh. Did you know that disclose his income tax? Really? Yeah, for 10 trivia points. Another Jesus. 10 trivia points. Here you go. This For this button. I think you have a crutch. It's the trivia point thing. Go ahead. What show did Bernie Sanders a promise to reveal? Daily Show, Trevor Noah. All right, now let's move on. Damn. On to those looking to kick this babbling psycho out of office. If you if you have a windmill anywhere <laughs> near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75% in value. And they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? <laughs> yes, we have quite a few 2020 Democratic POTUS candidate updates mm. here. First off, Massachusetts Senator, the Eliminator, Elizabeth Warren, has added another time-to-take-out-the-trash idea to her platform. So far, we have heard break up the tech giants like Amazon and Zuckerberg and get rid of the Electoral College. Well, the Eliminator <laughs> strikes again, and God bless her, as Elizabeth Warren proposes completely eliminating the filibuster. Yeah, I, okay, I'm I, like a flag 
blowing in the breeze on the filibuster thing. Uh, by the way, uh, Elizabeth, what it was break up Facebook, not Zuckerberg. Poor Zuckerberg, break him up. But uh, in terms of the filibuster, all right, I'm all okay. Let's, I'm writing it down. Talk to Ferris okay. about. Can we fil- talk to uh, the people buster. now about that? Hold on, I'm writing it down. I like the old filibuster. When you had to like get up and give a speech forever and ever, and one person remember Mr. Smith goes to uh, Washington or Congress, whatever the name of the movie was. The uh, Frank, what's the name of the movie? The exact name of the movie. Oh, by the way, he he weighed in. Michelle Wolf was last year. Oh, I, you know, I sit corrected. Uh, anyway, I thought it was 2017. What do I don't know? Um, but uh, so the old filibuster where somebody actually had to work. Now they got this new uh, watered down, diluted. It's like everything else, D. Everything's getting watered down. Harumph. And uh, this watered down filibuster where you could just sort of like announce uh, that we're, you're going to filibuster a bill. So you just automatically have to get to 60 votes to end it. I, I think if you're going to have a filibuster, you got to do a real filibuster, right? Get up on there and talk for like 50 hours and, you know, earn your uh, obnoxiousness. So I'm up mixed feeling. I feel if a senator wants to talk for 50 hours, you know, more power to him or her. Elizabeth Warren also added universal child care to her presidential here, platform. Here, here. And finally, Grandpa Joe, oh. former Vice President Joe Biden, mm. will he run or won't he? Yeah. All this week, we have noticed Biden attempting to get in front of the recent uncomfortable touching allegations against him. Mm-hmm. And I guess his strategy here is to joke about it. During an appearance today at an IBEW union event, he came out on stage and hugged IBEW President Lonnie Stevenson, who is a male, by the way. Uh, I have the audio from Biden after the hug. Here's Joe Biden. I just want you to know I had permission to hug Lonnie. Anyway. Then, yeah. a, then after that, a few kids were brought onto stage. Biden touched the kids, just, you know, like their shoulder. And then, uh, well, he's at it again. By the way, he gave me permission to touch him. I... Catch Joe Biden at Zany's. Uh, <laughs> ben is joking. Uh, I'll ask you, Ben, is joking about this an obvious sign? He is not taking these allegations seriously. And is it just me or is it kind of awkward? Uh, it is awkward. And uh, I think it's his attempt uh, to put it behind him, if you will. Uh, by the way, I'm writing this down for Joanna and David Ferris. Joe Biden hugging. Got it. Got it. Right. Uh, I'm writing it down for uh, you. Yeah, yeah, we get it. We get it. Uh, several hats on the Ben Jarofsky <laughs> show. Several hats. Uh, I think this is an attempt to do what Donald Trump does and make fun of legitimate criticism against him. And by making fun of it, uh, maybe uh, he can distance himself uh, uh, from it and you know sort of trivialize it and you know, de-weaponize it. Is that a word? I don't know. So uh, I think it's clearly his attempt. By the way, he hasn't even officially announced he's running for president. So while he's doing this, I'm sure he's got all his pollsters seeing what the impact is. That's really what's going on. He's testing all these different strategies to see how they play. And uh, if it seems as though he has weathered the storm and that that Democrats don't care about uh, his odd behavior, uh, then he will proceed and run for president. If it turns out that they do care, you watch. He'll suddenly go, you know, I've thought about it, and I've come to the conclusion I need more time with my family. You watch that one. will be coming up real soon. And a new poll finds that most voters say uncomfortable touching allegations against former Vice President Joe Biden should not disqualify him from being president. In the Hill slash Harris X poll, 56% said Biden's conduct, uh, or yeah, his conduct should not be viewed as disqualifying, while 23% 
20% said it should be. And my favorite here, 21% said, I don't know, unsure. <laughs> the 20, that's like the 21% in the mayoral election. Remember that one? Hey, I didn't even know that was coming. Am I a genius or what? Because <laughs> that's why he's making jokes, folks. He did the polls. He showed that the overwhelming majority of Democratic voters don't care about it. So he figures, ah, I'll make jokes about it. Now he'll, now he'll poll the jokes. All right. I'll say, do people like your jokes? And they'll do like, you know, what are those the little, they put everybody in a room, whatever they call those things again, you know, where they. Uh, oh, it's like a test room. Test room, whatever. No, Frank, what do they call it? Uh, and uh, they'll survey, um, you know, voters to see if they think it's funny, if they think uh, it's too serious for humor, that kind of thing. So let's face it, it's all a poll tested business running for office. Now, of course, we will keep you posted on these stories as today's program rolls along. Enough of the national news. Benny J, mm-hmm. please tell me that you're ready to find out what is going on in Chicago and or Illinois. Yeah, I will tell you this. What? It's what I told you yesterday. It's what I told you the day before. And it's what I told you the day before that. I was born ready. Excellent. Because coming up <laughs> after these short words from our host, Ben Jarofsky, we will find out what else is news. I got it. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> I cannot wait. It's that time of day where the doctor plucks that little trick out of his little sleeve. Let's see what it is when we return. At Chicago Land Cremation Options, we are committed to listening, educating, and guiding your family through the cremation process. Whether it is time of death or when planning your wishes for the future, Chicago Land Cremation Options can accommodate you at an affordable price and with great dignity. Avoid funeral home costs with direct access to a crematory for a cremation. Chicago Land Cremation Options, just south of O'Hare, five minutes west of Chicago. It's a family-owned business and operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Visit it at ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time, ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. Hey, and we're back, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Oh, oh, what was go, that? Buddy. There we go. Come on. Smoother transitions, fellas. Uh, I'm <laughs> fellas, <gonna> go. <laughs> it's just me, dude. <laughs> Our crack team. You know how it is like at the end of our, our, uh, other shows? I'll just say that. They read off all the people. And our executive producer, Billy Bob. Our recorder, Billy Joe. Our, you know, lunch runner, Sammy Sue. They got this whole list. <laughs> I got one guy. Hey, guys. <laughs> Several hats. Several the, hats here on the Ben Jarofsky I'm just going to start making up people, all right? You know, uh, our, uh, what is that thing there? That big old thing over there? I don't know. What it are looks, you talking about? <laughs> the soundboard. Oh, our soundboard, soundboard yeah. control engineer, Brian Joe. <laughs> okay, we're about to find out what's going on locally. It's time for what else is news. Mm. Landslide Lori is getting her mayoral <laughs> transition team in order. Oh, oh transition team. We're going to find out who's in it all and right. unpack it all in okay, moments. Folks. But first, some Landslide. state news. Oh. Yeah, we have oh, an update Governor on Pritzker. our Yeah, we have an update on our friends uh, of the cur- uh, conservative persuasion's uh, favorite uh, thing to rip Governor <laughs> JB Pritzker about. Uh, and it's not his love for horses. No, it is not. They actually uh, think horses are pretty awesome. Who doesn't love horses no it's his graduated income tax oh, plan uh, seriously been there's so much right wing trolling on pritzker about this guys trust me listening all right i'm from downstate i see people back home posting this uh mostly hot garbage all the time i say mostly because every now and again something funny will occasionally get in there mm-hmm. but just one look at the weirdos over at the illinois policy institute's facebook page in their cover photo of jb <laughs> pritzker and a magical unicorn okay. and <laughs> cartoons like a fox trying to raid a hen house would prove it but our Illinois Democrats 
are rumored to be in a disagreement over JB's first installment of the graduated income tax plan to pass through legislation, a plan proposing a tax cut for every income bracket below $250,000 a year in some cases. Yeah, apparently they are concerned with what the rate should be. State Representative Kathleen Willis, a member of the House Democratic leadership team, said there was some concern that trumpeting such a small amount as a tax cut could be perceived as, quote, almost insulting by some constituents. But Pritzker says, do not believe the hype. Oh, no, he's confident the legislature will approve a graduated income tax. I wouldn't believe everything you read, but I would say uh, we're doing quite well in terms of support. I wouldn't believe everything you read. Once again, everybody's making fun of the media. We've talked so much about this. We're going to be talking about this in the coming weeks as well, folks. The graduated income tax, everybody knows, or JB calls it a fair tax. I'm sure that was a concept that they came up with uh, after polling. Uh, somehow or other, that, that would uh, work better with the uh, voters. But the basic point is this. The more money you make, the higher the rate of taxation should be because uh, you have the money, you have the wherewithal to make a greater contribution. The less money you make, if you're in the Ben and Dennis side of the swimming pool, the lower your rate uh, should be because like uh, a 5% chunk of your salary means a lot more to you than it does if you have a billion dollars a year. It makes a lot of sense. Year after year, voters say uh, they favor it in polls. Uh, they favor it in state referendum, etc. cetera. Uh, but when you start to implement it, that's when the dirty dealing uh, starts up. And I talked about this all week in regards to the 47th Ward aldermanic race where a Democrat, Negron, was uh, using the um, rounder style uh, rhetoric against his opponent, Matt Martin. And so the Democrats are buying into this uh, Republican rhetoric that any tax hike, even if it's on the wealthiest, uh, is somehow or other a tax on us all. And so that is, it's a very difficult um, campaign to fight for if you're for a progressive tax and it's very difficult to fight the rhetoric against it it's easy to demagogue this issue so it's going to be very tricky uh, kathleen willis is absolutely correct it's gonna be very tricky you have to do the uh tax in such a way governor quinn was just talking about this the other day in this very studio you have to link it to a cut in the property tax you have to make it clear to voters that um a higher tax on the wealthy will be offset by a lower tax on you. And uh, that's the challenge that Pritzker has to come up with. So it's a delicate little game of negotiations here that'll be happening. Again, they'll be testing this with polls. Uh, they'll be testing this out uh, on the talk shows, see what's what sales, what's popular uh, before they have that showdown vote. Probably in a couple, couple months or so. Well, no, next month in May. It'll probably be in May. Also, JB was in Chicago last night. He and Mayor Rahm Emanuel, along with their wives, attended a dinner in the Gold Coast. Oh, Ben, I know you love the Gold Coast. You were uh, down there rubbing elbows with everyone. Did you happen to run into Pritzker and Rahm last I night? I did not. Really? So, where was I last night? I oh, can't remember. Man. Yeah, Not at the Gold Coast, I huh? was not at the Gold Coast. I was definitely oh, not with Pritzker and Rahm. Ah, out of his regular schedule there, folks. All right, we're now day three, into day three, since former prosecutor and former Chicago police board, but current mayor-elect Lori Lightfoot has won the election. And 
there's no time to waste here, people. Yeah, we got to get a plan together to clean up the mess the last mayor made. Lightfoot has indeed hit the ground running, and she has announced her first batch of mayoral transition committee members, Ben. Oh, okay. Transition yeah. team politics. Oh, and if this goes anything like our governor's transition, oh, there's about 2,000 more people to come here. <laughs> Good Lord. Eh? He had yeah. a lot of them. But let's get to know who's in so far, people. It is time to get to know... Lori Lightfoot, transition <laughs> team. Uh, All righty, first up, okay. it's senior advisor Sarah Pang. Pang has co-chaired Mayor Rahm Emanuel's 2011 transition. She worked as Senator Alan Dixon's staff for almost 10 years and was the first deputy chief of staff for Richard M. Daly for nine years. She also spent a decade in CNA's global communications operation. Ben Jarofsky, what do you know about Sarah Pang, and what do you think about this? Well, Sarah Pang is what I would call a classic Dem. And so you have to understand the politics of transition teams, folks. Uh, A transition team uh, serves two purposes. One is, well... There is the notion that you you, uh, you you put people on who know something about operating government itself, operating city government in this case. So it sort of helps the incoming mayor uh, deal with just the practicalities day to day. But the larger, more important pers- purpose, I think, is a symbolic public relations one. I guess this is a cynic in me speaking. Ramana Hussein is coming to the room. I don't know if uh, who's more cynical about politics, me or Ramana Hussein. I but, bet it's you. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, it's it's like uh, an attempt. So it's this public relations attempt. And when an incoming mayor wants to sort of assure all these different constituencies in the city of Chicago that he or she, in this case she, uh, is looking out for them. So when you put somebody like Sarah Pang on, as you've heard, who uh, has whose background is with the Daly administration, with Alan Dixon, conventional Dems, uh, sort of sending a, a signal that uh, we're responsible, we're not revolutionaries, we're not radicals, we know how to make the trains run on, run on time. Uh, so rest assured, sort of corporate Chicago, mainstream Chicago. That is sort of the message that a mayor sends out with a a nominee like that. Up next, it's Lori Lightfoot's chief of staff, Maurice Klassen. Yeah. Having, uh, let's see here, and comes to an assignment having run strategy for the Chicago Police Department. His focus has been to improve community policing, increase training, and utilize data analytics. He also was charged with enforcing reform mandates under the consent decree. Klassen, a former Seattle prosecutor, was a program officer on criminal justice issues at MacArthur Foundation. Yeah, once again, sending out a message in this case that Lori Lightfoot is serious about police reform, but you don't take someone who's too radical. You don't put Jamal Green on there, for instance. Uh, Hey, Jamal. And you put somebody who's like a mainstream reformer on there just to uh, not alienate the police department too much, but sort of send a message that you take serious. Uh, The... um, the mandate, and I think it was a mandate that emerged from the fallout over Kwame McDonald, that we have to clean up our police department in regards to its relationship with the black community of the city of Chicago. So it's sort of like a reassuring message that she hasn't forgotten that. On to our next Lori Lightfoot mayoral transition member. He is the Intergovernmental Affairs Advisor, Manuel <laughs> Perez. He most recently was Lightfoot's campaign manager and before that ran Congressman 
Jesus Chuy Garcia's campaign for Congress. Perez previously served as chief of staff to the county clerk, which has over 200 employees, and as chief of staff to then Commissioner Garcia. Yeah, twofold in this one. Uh, number one, it's a political person, so knows how all this thing plays out politically. Number two, obviously, a Latino uh, ties to Chewy, assuring the uh, Latino population of the city of Chicago that I, Lori Lightfoot, have not forgotten you. Right? Political dynamics going on here, folks. As uh, Lori Lightfoot is, you know, she got just got 75% of the vote to quote you. She wants to keep that 75% of the vote. <laughs> All right, up next, Lisa Schneider Fabes. Our next transition member, she will be, or is, transition manager. She's been a business and government consultant and has worked with Chicago Police Accountability Task Force. She previously worked for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, helping local governments and HUD clients comply with public housing regulations and environmental laws. She also had a stint leading projects for Chicago Public Schools. Yeah, uh, I think I know her. Uh, I think I've run into her over the years. Um, I can't remember half the people I've met over the years, Dr. D. The housing issue, very important there. Once again, uh, trying to send a message out to the larger community that I'm not completely overlooking housing, although if she's like the last few, uh, last two mayors we have, uh, affordable housing will be overlooked uh, very uh, quickly in her administration. And again, someone uh, with experience in government, a classic Dem type. So once again, sort of just reassure, uh, assure, just sending out this assurance that uh, we're going to have responsible people who know politics, who know, know, know how government uh, works in charge. We're not going to have rabble-rousers like Ben and Romana running things. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got one more transition member to announce. But first, shout out to our friend Scott on the uh, live stream. He's listening this afternoon. Uh, he has a question for you here, Ben. I no, you know the answer here. I Scott so. asks, is First Tuesdays terminated or is it seeking a new venue? No. Hard to tell from its website. Oh, yeah. We got to work on that website. <laughs> <laughs> good. good. <laughs> the first two, my partner in crime at First Tuesday, the great Mick Dumpke, may be the only guy in the city of Chicago as bad at promotion as I am. And uh, come on, Mick. You know it's true out there. It's sort of an inside joke. So, yeah, we have to work on that website. Scott, thank you very much. I'm going to have our team of crack, uh, uh, what is it, computer techies working on it as of tomorrow. But, no, First Tuesday will be back on May 7th. I talked about that with Mick yesterday. We just don't know who our guest is. Typical Mick and Ben. But it will be back. All right. Yes. And, and we, we took April 2nd off because it literally was an election day. We both had things to do. Not sure who the guest is, but damn, those two are entertaining. All right. <laughs> so just go check it out. Yeah. On to our final Lori Lightfoot transition member. And this member needs no introduction here on the Ben Jarofsky Show. He was actually a guest on our program not long ago. Mm-hmm. He's former Illinois gubernatorial candidate Chris Kennedy's lieutenant pick. Mr. Rajoy. Yes. Okay. Remember I said you want to send out reassurances to very constituencies? Rajoy is like a, <laughs> a reassurance to the Ben constituency. Uh, he's a committed progressive. He's a really good guy. I love Rajoy. And um, so, you know, he has um, some deep values. He's very much concerned about the issue of crime and relationship between the black community uh, and the police and uh, economic development. He was Chris Kennedy's lieutenant governor, and Chris Kennedy was the one who opined. And I got a feeling that Ross sort of gently pushed him in this direction, that the the planning strategies uh, under Mayor Rahm and Mayor Daley, well, I added the Mayor Daley part, uh, were intended to uh, force poor people out of the city of Chicago 
through gentrification. So when you put a Rod Joy on there, you're sort of sending a message to people like me that we haven't forgotten you completely. And it was funny when Rom uh, did his uh, transition team, he didn't put anybody remotely resembling me uh, on the transition team. So it was Rom's way of saying, Oh, he just gave he just flipped the bird, guys. <laughs> Two of them. Two hands. Oh my. That was just Rom's way of letting the lefties like me know how little he cared about us. But uh Rod Joy is a good guy, and so um, you know, I think he could be the conscience of this transition team. You, you can call it a conventuency. What did you just say? A conventuency? Uh, uh I do not know what you're talking All about. All right, then whatever you're there. All right, but hey, just like that, you're now in the know of what's going on in Chicago and Illinois. We had some state news in there, and now you will have an answer. The next time someone asks you, hey, what else is news? All right. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Well, let me tell you something. All right. Okay. I'm going to tell you something that Larry from the Bewitch Show. Larry Joe Bird, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. All right. And Larry Wolf, a kid I went to high school with. Hey, Larry. They all agree. You did a great job. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. We got Romano Saint sitting here. Ready to do the Romano Rundown. Cannot wait. We'll be right back after this. Hey there. Producer Dennis here. Thanks for finding and listening to the brand new Ben Jarofsky Show. All right, so here's how this works. The Ben Jarofsky Show live streams on the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel Tuesday through Friday, 1 until 3 p.m. Once the show is over, you can listen to the replay on our YouTube channel, or we throw it online for you to download by 4 p.m. Where can you download the Ben Jarofsky Show, you may be asking yourself? Well, you may be asking yourself a fantastic question. You can find previous Ben Jarofsky shows and guest interviews through several outlets. The Chicago Sun-Times Online, chicago.suntimes.com. The Chicago Reader Online, chicagoreader.com. And wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, pick one. Just search for the Ben Jarofsky Show. J-O-R-A. V is in victory, S-K-Y. So, let's recap. Tuesday through Friday, 1 until 3 p.m., live streamed on the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel and downloadable by 4 at chicago.suntimes.com, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast. Yes, the Ben Jarofsky Show is back. We're live and downloaded. Tell your friends and enjoy the rest of the show. Commercial break over. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Yes, indeed. Commercial break is over. It's time to get down to business. Ramon Hussein is in the studio. She, of course, editor here at the Chicago Sun-Times. Chicago Sun-Times, one of our sponsors, along with the reader. And we are, uh, we are rooted. Our studio is right here in the Chicago Sun-Times building. So anyway, Ramon Hussein comes on every Friday. The coffee's excellent here at the Sun-Times, by the way. The, the co- they know how to make coffee at the Bright One. Uh, and we call it the Romano Rundown. So, Romana, welcome back. Welcome. Uh, happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, too. And before we uh, dive into all the issues of the, the week, uh, I'll ask you the question. The, are you more cynical than me? Are we tied? What do you think? I don't know. I think I think we might be tied because, I don't know, I, I politically, I just find that there's not that many 
people I'm super enamored with. I think you're more enamored with people than I am. Yes. I, think, <laughs> so, I don't know. I know. I do I, like people. Yes. I like people. I don't know if I like politicians. I kind of, I, I, I don't get enamored that quickly with a lot of politicians because I think a lot of times they say things and they're totally off message. Well, like, we, you know, people are always saying that they're so progressive and they really aren't. When well, you kind of scratch the surface, when when you see uh, when you see, we were just going running through the transition members, uh, the, the members that uh, Lori Life will put on her transition team, and uh, I, what I was saying is that this is largely sort of like a stage thing, political demonstration to show different constituencies in the city of Chicago. Yeah, uh, that she's looking out for their interests. That I'm, I'm not sure how much attention she's going to pay to whatever the transition team comes up with. There could be a whole new set of realities next week that dictates how she behaves yeah but at the moment it's important to show various constituency yeah and i don't falter for that i mean most people do that i'm yeah. just saying i'm just cynical i think i i just think whenever there's like somebody that everybody's excited about politically i'm like i'm not that excited about them they're not that interesting wow. they're not that charismatic people find certain people charismatic and i don't find them charismatic wait at so all. time out in 2008 you weren't oh well, in, I, i'm uh, not gonna i I won't, say, I won't i won't say that i wasn't impressed with barack obama i was pretty much especially because his middle name was the same as my last name i was pretty excited yes about you're that. Re- he didn't really make a big deal about that fact, well did he, he? he had to he had to downplay that he had to, <laughs> to downplay. but i believe Correct me if I'm wrong. That he was sworn in, didn't uh, he? Did he said his name? He, he said, said Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah, and uh, Hussein is actually my dad's middle name too. When he came to the United States, he technically didn't have a last name because you know people in India, you know their names are totally different. I mean, people have more last names. I hear more last names than I did. That I guess that they did back in the olden days. So he just took his middle name and made it our last name. Wait, did he have a last name? No, he his uh, his first name was Akhtar and his middle name was Hussein. I don't think he had a last name. Like it wasn't like the family name. So when he came to the United States, he just add the, added that as his middle name. I, I mean, as his last as name. As his last yeah. name. And that's how you became Hussein. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, I did not know that. So I learned <laughs> something new today. All right. Let's talk about the mayoral election. 75% uh, vote for uh, Lori Lightfoot. 75%. Um, I think that's the highest since we talked about this yesterday, since Daly in 2003, something like that. Uh, so the question I ask everybody, does she have a mandate? And if she has a mandate, what is she supposed to do? What is that mandate? I- I think she, we mean a mandate, like what she's going to do. Like, yeah, like gonna, so people are asking for something like specific. Specific. Yeah. I don't know. Does she have, she hasn't said anything. She actually was here today for the Fran show. And I think she just is going to come in and have a couple mandates. I don't know, like maybe, you know, quote unquote, fix the city. I don't know if she has a mandate necessarily. Yeah. I think she just wants to come in and be a, you know, seen as different than the status quo. That's what I think. Maybe that's what her mandate's going to be. Like things are going to operate differently. That's the way she's going to probably pose her first few days. That's yeah. what I think. But I could be wrong. Yeah. I could be I, completely wrong. I guess I don't know if anyone ever has a mandate. No, know. that's what I was going to say. I don't remember Rahm Emanuel having a mandate. Well, he, he claimed he? he had a mandate. What it, was that? Uh, Rahm Emanuel's claimed that his mandate, uh, well, it depends on which um, front uh, you were talking about. For instance, in the schools, his oh, mandate true. was to um, create more charters, um, undercut the power of the teachers union uh, by making the teachers have to work more hours yeah. and be more susceptible to being fired uh, by the whims of the 
principal or the, the board, have a more centralized board. Uh, he claimed that he had a mandate to do that within a year. The teachers are on strike. And yeah, I guess she, uh, Lori Lightfoot has had several mandates or at least spoke about like how things are going to run in the city council, how would she like, you know, a school, elect, uh, an elected school board. Mm-hmm. Maybe that, you know, she'll kind of focus on education, just like a lot of our former mayors have. I think that may be something that she's going to be looking into, because I think that's always one of the most important topics that yeah. each mayor has tackled. Well, if unless I'm being too cynical here, Romana, I feel that politicians claim they have a mandate when they don't really have a mandate. No, so for instance, that's what I'm saying. I yeah. don't know if she has one. Right. But, but 75% um, you know. of the people like Donald Trump didn't even get a majority of the voters. But his he, mandate was making America great again. <laughs> and he, whatever that you know, means. I, you know, America first, right? So um, I think people did see that as a mandate, like, you know. But it's hard to claim you have a mandate to make America great again, even though we don't even know exactly what make America great again means when you didn't get more, you didn't get most of the votes. How can you claim you have a mandate when you got <laughs> less than 50% of the votes? True. I don't know. I think he he said, and, you know, a lot of people saw that as different ways, you know, I don't know, make America white again. That's what a lot of people saw it as. I think a lot of people in this quote unquote base did see it as that make America great again, like make it like the 1950s again. Yeah. And uh, so he claimed he had a mandate when in fact he didn't have a mandate. It seems like Lori Lightfoot is not claiming she has a mandate, even though you would think 75% of the vote, she's got a mandate. But but the problem is, I guess, uh, when they when politicians, particularly in the city of Chicago, they run for office, they don't stipulate exactly what they're going to do. So it's hard. They, they do in like little bits and pieces. You know, they said, you know, you know, she'll say, you know, a lot of these obviously with this mayoral race, everybody was basically talking about how they're not going to be like Rom. So they talked about different things that he did and things they disagreed with. So they do tell you like little bits and pieces. Now, will they actually carry through or will Lori Lightfoot actually carry through with what she said she's going to do? I mean, it's not going to be it's not going to be that cut and dry. Yeah. Don't be like Rom. That's what I was telling uh, Mick Dumke yesterday. What's my advice? Don't be like <laughs> Rom. Uh, but that's less about policies, et cetera. I think, yeah, it's true. Than just behavior yeah, and, and how true. you act all right the voter turnout was abysmal uh yeah i uh, just I, I i'm perplexed because when i was when i turned 18 the first thing my dad said was go register and vote and i've been voting ever since then so i just find it amazing that people don't vote because it was something that was ingrained in in my head since i was a little kid it was something my dad pushed us to do and I just voted for every, I I don't think I've ever not voted. So that's a very, it's a very, um, I don't know, just personally, I just find it interesting that people don't vote. I mean, when we went to go vote in our precinct, they told us, I asked them, like, you know, I asked the people over there, there was basically no line. There, I wanted to do the electronic balloting, but there's this, like, every time I go, there's, like, only one machine, and there's somebody who doesn't know how it works, and I was like, I want I want to do the electronic, but, you know, Why? it was, like, taking, I don't know, because it's so quick. It's like, you, you like to push I don't know, I don't want to use a pen. I, I just, like, whatever, that's easy, but, so every, so there's no line, except that one guy who's taking forever <laughs> to vote for two people. I know, he's <laughs> like, yeah. But um, I asked the woman, uh, one of the volunteers, how it was in the morning, and she said, she's like, it was so dead. And we were, we went in around 12.30, 12.45, and they told us we're the 32nd and 33rd people in our precinct to vote, which is, I, I don't know, I kind of feel like people in Rogers Park are somewhat politically active, and that's, 
that it was just kind of, it's just kind of perplexing to me yeah. and i know i know like this younger generation i've seen a lot of people tweet about how we shouldn't shame people that don't who don't vote and i just i find that interesting maybe i'm just too old i'm well, like let's well talk about that uh, and uh, i just find i'm like why not and they said you know well look at the choices they have and i agree like like i said i'm cynical i don't think like some politicians going to come and they say they're going to be different than the you know their predecessor mm-hmm. i don't think that's things are necessarily going to change but don't you want to at least vote for even if there are two people you hate the lesser of two evils i just i i don't know i just find it very interesting that people don't vote I, well the whole so. concept of shaming uh the generational divide here and uh i get this a lot from maya who's on this show every tuesday uh, she's uh, of the younger yeah. uh, persuasion uh, from me. and um, Me too. I'm Generation X. Yeah, you're she's Generation X. She's a millennial. She's a millennial. And uh, I've heard, she's not the only person that tells me this. She, always <laughs> stop shaming us. Stop shaming us. Uh, it, and somehow or other, it's like my fault. You know, <laughs> people don't vote. It's your fault. What do I do? Uh, but so what's your general attitude about I, millennials I, who say stop shaming? I don't agree with that. I, I'll be, I know I try to keep my opinions out of this, but I, I, I don't, I'm not saying I'm going to go sit there and start berating people I don't know who didn't vote, but I have shamed some of my friends who said they didn't vote. Yeah. Like I told, you know, I remember in the 2008 presidential election a friend of mine who's become very politically active since was telling me how she didn't vote and i'm like how could you not vote i was just i don't know i shame my friends who don't vote i'm not going to go around and shaming other people who don't vote who i don't know i just find it very odd and i I think i think you know you don't want to shame a lot of people on a lot of things but if there's going to be one thing that i was going to shame people over i think voting is one of the things because you know um you know there's so many countries i mean my parents are immigrants from india and you know and people talk about not having time and people vote there it's the world's largest democracy and i'm not saying voter turnout's like crazy but you know in a lot of countries and i've been to a lot of countries people don't have that right and you know, it's like, it's, it's just a privilege to vote. I don't know. Just, I, I, I know that a lot of people say that you shouldn't vote shame and especially the younger generation. I remember, um, the Tribune did an article a day after the primaries mm-hmm. and some college students were saying, well, yeah. I had class yeah, or, I saw that. Yeah. or it was cold. It yeah. wasn't cold this time. Yeah. You know, it was pretty nice and sunny. And, and, uh, I <laughs> voted when I was in college, just yeah. wake up earlier, go after class. And I just thought that was interesting. Well, I don't I, know. I, I'm probably going to get shamed for saying that. Well, here's the deal about shame. I'm going to tell you this right now, Romana. There's a little bit of inconsistency among my millennialistic friends. Uh, they, whenever I try to shame them, they go, shame on you for trying to shame us. Yeah. But my millennialistic <laughs> friends are always trying to shame me into doing something. And the most obvious example was in the... Um, the lastest mayoral campaign that Tony Perkwinkle people ran commercials or people supported uh, Tony Perkwinkle ran commercials trying to shame us all into voting for Tony Perkwinkle by saying that if Lori Lightfoot were elected uh, mayor of the city of Chicago, the police would just start killing people. I mean, talk about blatantly trying to shame you into doing something. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, shame, shame on you for saying I can't shame you, but you can shame me. Yeah, I've seen that too. I mean, I I think it's okay to have a healthy debate, but you know, when you say you're, you know, then when people bring up words like shame, then you're like, feel bad. You're like, oh no, I'm going to make them, you know, cry. I don't want to make anybody cry or feel bad, but I, I, I have no problem 
shaming my friends who don't well, vote. Well, here's the, the or shaming people who don't vote. I will now try to articulate um, the defense of people who say don't shame, and that is this. It's not the fault of voters who don't vote that they don't vote, if you follow that. It's that they're expressing um, their, what, uh, opposition, their alienation uh, to the system as it is, which is hostile to them, does not serve their interests. There's no compelling reason, in like in this case, to vote for a Tony Progrinkle or a Lori Lightfoot. So by not voting, you're actually sending a message that the system isn't working and you don't want to support do you buy that at all? I understand where people from that viewpoint are coming from, but at the same time, I'm just saying as a citizen, I mean, someone who is a person of color and a woman, a lot of, a lot of politicians don't serve my interest, uh, you know, but I still think that, you know, you should go out and vote. That's just, I, I know, maybe it's just the way I was raised. I, all of us, when we turned 18, there's four kids in our family. My dad, as soon as we turned 18, just said, go register and vote. He said that within the first second or day that we turned 18. Yeah. So. By the way, I want to tell everybody our two o'clock guest has entered the building. Joanna Klonsky has entered the building. I always love to say I love it when my guests come early. So Joanna Klonsky is in the building. And she, uh, Romana, is of the millennialistic persuasion. <laughs> so maybe she could help us uh, understand whether shaming is a concept that we should just throw away. <laughs> uh, but I also happen to know Joanna Klonsky's parents. And she, they taught her at an early age, you're going to go out I and vote. I think she votes. Yeah. You're going to vote, girl. <laughs> It's That's like how my parents taught. were, yeah. Uh, all right. Now, you. this is something I've wanted to talk to you about for a long time. Um, you mentioned this earlier about being Asian-American. Amaya Pawar was just a running for treasurer, and he lost. He was, correct me if I'm wrong, the first Asian-American alderman elected uh, in the city of Chicago. I believe that I am correct when I say that. Yeah. He was elected in 2011 from the 47th Ward. Uh, and this was his first attempt. Well, he ran for governor briefly, and he dropped out of that race. Yeah. Uh, but this is his first attempt to seek higher office, and he lost uh, to uh, Melissa Conyers Urban. Um, your thoughts in general, take it to the specific, but your thoughts in general about the, the place Asian Americans have in Chicago politics? I don't think they really have a seat at the table because we've discussed this before. I think a lot of people just see the city as black and white, and shades of brown but not brown as in south asian or um not you know asian i've never really you never really hear people talking about the asian vote and and to some extent i understand that don't get me wrong the city you know there aren't you know the asian population isn't you know overflowing like it is like in other parts of the country but we are there and I think there is this notion that if you're Asian American, this is something that's been going on for years. You're this quote unquote model minority. And that's what uh, the word to describe a lot of Asians was. So people kind of blend us into the overall white community. And I to explain that, um, so like, I don't think we get, people don't see us as the same as Hispanics or African-American. We never get lumped into that group. We're kind of like separate. But, and you know, a lot of people argue that, oh, you know, Asian-Americans are successful and this and that, they're different. And and I don't think that's necessarily true. There's so many different Asian groups in the city of Chicago. It's not that black and white when it comes to Asian-Americans. And one of the things I try to tell people to explain, um, even at the Sun-Times, I, there was a job opening when I was working for Michael Sneed for a general reporter. 
and I was told that I couldn't apply to the job because it was for a minority. And I was like, hello. <laughs> they told hello. me. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. I was basically told I wasn't a minority. And by the way, the word minority is not preferred anymore by the AP. It's person of color. And you can only, they say that you should try to not use that word minority. What's your thoughts on that? I think that's a good, I think that's a good, uh, they said, unless it's in quotes, because you know, there are still things that people talk about, like minority owned businesses, Mm -hmm. you know, when the city talks about contracts for women and minority um, owned businesses. So people still use that term, but the AP, I don't know if you saw the AP had all these different rules, like no hyphen in the African American or Asian American. Why? So they were saying that the hyphen originally has, um, I believe, racist roots to kind of other those people. So the hyphen kind of, so taking it out makes it less otherizing. So it should just be two separate words or not one word? Yeah. So we were talking about that actually earlier the week during the election. So, oh my God, this, okay, folks, this is really uh, geeky journalistic talk. But when I first got started in the business, they gave me this AP uh, that uh, Romano alluded to, Associated Press. It was a guidebook, which was so overwhelming to me because I'm dyslexic and it's just, I had to remember all these things. And one of the things they said, like when you're using, uh, what is it? You got to put the hyphen in. Yeah. Now it modifies. It's now it's taken out. We're actually talking about the newsroom and i was saying that because the changes came out last week if you follow twitter ap kind of went down all the different changes and i was actually mentioning that to our editor i go you know we better decide what we're going to do because the mayor election is coming up and you know the hyphen apparently is not used and we tend to use uh do whatever ap does so i'm just bringing (laughs) that up but yeah i mean i was told i was back to her original thing i was told pretty much that i wasn't a minority so but I'm still not part part of the white boys club or, you know, we, I don't have white privilege. So that's one of the things I tell people, I go, I don't think, you know, Asians get that benefit of the doubt of being a person of color or like in that position. And we're not really part of the larger group. So I think you're in a, it's a pretty interesting place to be. Yeah. I think you're kind of in limbo. And a lot of times I think Asian Americans do feel like we're invisible and ignored not really treated the same way as a lot of different other other groups are or given the visibility or treated well the there same is way. a generational attitude about this and i'm going to show my age when what i'm about to say but when <laughs> here i go again but uh, uh five billion years ago when i li- uh, moved to chicago uh it, it was very much black white so for instance in terms of neighborhood dem- still, demographics yeah. when black people yeah. moved in white people moved out and the first thing i noticed about the difference that white people uh, or their attitude about people of color in general is that when hispanics moved in or latinos moved in uh white people didn't move out they didn't rush out it wasn't like the panic yeah so already i saw ah oh, did that even broke through my mind that there's a difference in their in the white people's minds between a quote-unquote black person and a quote-unquote uh latino person and asians like i don't know any white person would move out of an asian moved in i mean you know what i'm saying so it's like no, i know i'm just saying. trying to explain white people to people i know a lot about white people having lived among them my whole life oh i know a lot about white people too trust but me. do you understand the distinction no there? i no i trust me i understand i i don't think being indian is the same thing as being black at all like i i don't think i don't even think being indian is the same thing as being latino but at the same time, we're kind. I'm just saying that it's in in terms of discussion of you know bringing up Asian Americans or just you know the talk. It's we're just kind of non-existent, and it's different in England. 
because when you go to England, South Asians are the largest minority group, I think, I believe. And so when people talk, say Asian, they automatically mean South Asian. Mm -hmm. You know, the mayor of uh, London is a South Asian guy. So it's like they have more people who are visible who are South Asian. I mean, it's changing. There's so many more South Asians in media and politics as well. Do you think Amaya Pawar was under pressure uh, by being the first, the, num- the first, always the first person's under pressure. But do you think he had faced particular pressure that we don't even know about? I don't think he had necessarily pressure, but I don't think he was, you know, treated the same way. I don't know if he got the support that he needed as, as a person of color that other, you know, cause you know, he's not Latino, like he's not um, Hispanic. So, you know, there's so many resources. I'm not saying it's great for latinos or hispanics in the city but you know they're they're more politically active in the last couple of years being south asian probably was hard it probably you know because it's not like there's these coalitions of you know there are more different south asian groups but there's not like there's all these political groups and you know people putting up a candidate and things like that so i think he probably did have that pressure uh i'm gonna make a transition a couple things i really have to ask you about i always tell this to people uh romana was saying before she became an editor here at the sun times for years covered the the criminal court building uh today's front page and my beloved bright one chicago sun times cops fox has got to go we talked about justice smollett last week uh, for a long time it doesn't seem like the story Yeah. yeah What, what do you make of this one? Cops, Fox has to got to go. Well, these were suburban police chiefs. And I think uh, the Chicago FOP had a news conference yesterday and the Harvey police uh, chief had actually disagreed with them. So I think I think that was pretty interesting. I think most of the I mean, there was kind of a racial element to this. If you saw the press conference, it was mostly white police chief. I'm looking Chiefs. at the picture right now, yeah. So um, the Harvey police chief, I believe, is African-American and said, you know, I don't necessarily, I respect what they had to say, but I don't agree with them. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, I don't know if you saw that there was a um, former state, uh, assistant state's attorney who had petitioned, who filed a petition yesterday asking for an independent investigator to look in to see whether Kim Fox interfered with the case. And then today... There also was a former um, appellate court judge who had filed a petition asking for the same thing. So I don't think this case is ever going to end. I mean, because today we had uh, Mark um, Garagos respond to the city's uh, city's uh, basically the city put out a statement yesterday saying that they're going to. Um, file a lawsuit they're in the midst oh, of Rob's filing trying to get yeah. the money uh. yeah he's trying to get the money and today um Smollett's attorney say we're not paying and he's not paying and if he, this does go to court civil court you, you know Rom and um chief um basically Eddie Johnson. Eddie Johnson are going to have to be deposed or testify. Yeah, I do not believe, and this will be something we'll be talking about, looks like for a long time to come, Romana, I do not believe uh, Justice Smollett's going to let this go to court because a lot of stuff could come out that he doesn't want to come out. So he may just want to pay that fine and, and, and you know settle this thing. It's going to, I don't know, this seems to have, like, every time you think there's going to be no Jesse Smollett story in the day, like, there's another Jesse Smollett story. So, it's, (laughs) I think it's, this is going to go on for a while, I I think. I got a feeling uh, that Lori Lightfoot is going to sort of lower the volume on uh, Jesse Gate, if you get what I'm saying. As far as Rom, like, he's riding his baby, you know, so I think, I guess this is a way of thinking if he talks a lot about this, people forget 
his that he of, was mayor yeah, <laughs> that he was mayor and then basically was booted out of town uh so uh, anyway one last question before i let you go uh lori lightfoot is throwing out the first pitch today at the Sox game i got that yes right. yes yeah. she is throwing out the first pitch at the Sox game and then um my friend and former colleague who works for the chicago tribune lisa donovan had tweeted that she's also going to be throwing out the first pitch at the home opener for the cubs and one of her colleagues at the Tribune made a joke that, wow, she's flip-flopping already. I, th- <laughs> I think she's supposed to be a Sox fan. So she's supposed to, She said she was a Sox fan here. My question to her is, why isn't she a Cleveland Indian fan or a Cincinnati Red fan? You are from Ohio, okay? And she goes, I only go with winners. Well, that's kind of a paraphrase. Of, <laughs> of course, you're not many winners at the, uh, on this city when it comes yes. to baseball. All right, Ramana is saying, great job as always. The Ramana Rundown every Friday at 1.30. Joanna Klonsky on deck. She's getting ready to talk all the creep news of the day. <laughs> and apparently, I didn't get a chance to talk uh, Joe Biden with uh, Ramana, but I'm sure I'll bring it up with Joanna. All the people he's hugging now, he gets their permission. That's what he said. Okay, he's getting swan- signed statements. Two guys so far. I yeah. just want you to know uh, I had permission to hug Lonnie. I mean, I mean, I, uh, anyway. Uh. Uh, that Joe's got a million of them. All right, Romana, thanks a lot. Have a great Thank weekend. Thank you. You too. Uh, we got Joanna Klonsky coming on. We'll be right back after this. Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you by the Chicago Sun-Times. For the latest in Chicago and Illinois news, sports, weather, and the latest in national news from a real Chicago frame of mind and real Chicago writers, check out the Chicago Sun-Times. Read the daily paper or online at chicago.suntimes.com. And hey, if you have a little extra cash, subscribe. And by the Chicago Reader. For a deeper dive in the daily Chicago news and for all of what's going on in this city, you gotta read the reader. Music, arts and culture, film, extensive event calendars, concert listings, and more, including weekly political columns from writers like Maya Dukmasova and, yes, our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader is free in newsstands and at chicagoreader.com. That's chicagoreader.com. Hey guys, hour number two of the Ben Jarofsky show for your Friday, April 5th is just moments away. But before we get into said hour number two, we would like to thank the following unions for bringing the Ben Jarofsky show back and help uh, helping make this possible here. First off, thank you to the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, not Aerosmith, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. Thank you once again to those unions for jumping on board with us here. And of course, today's show is brought to you by our friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Hour number two, let's go. Yes, thank goodness. It is Friday, April 5th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Reader Studio, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, we welcome political strategist Joanna Klonsky and its Roosevelt University professor slash author, David Ferris. David Ferris. 
And now your host, not a professor, but I think an author. <laughs> yeah, not a professor, though. Definitely not a professor. Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Yes, indeed. Joanna Klonsky is in the studio. Can't wait to talk politics. I'm going to ask her that shame question. Uh, is it uh, unfair for old timers to try to shame millennials into behaving like old timers? So get it. She has time to think about an answer to that one. And yes, folks, David Ferris will be here in a half an hour. He's the author of the book, It's Time to Fight Dirty. Democrats should be more like Republicans. <laughs> Fight dirty, and uh, and so uh, you know, I'll I'll have to ask him about my new love for Nancy Pelosi. I'm kind of curious with Joanna. I'm writing that down. Ask Joanna about Nancy Pelosi. All right, we'll have a lot to talk about with Joanna. But before we bring her on, what you got from a young man? Well, we have some updates here. A big announcement. Uh, but first. We have to talk to our live streamers, all right? Oh, okay. Some people are on the live stream. Mm-hmm. They're uh, sending their messages, and we like to communicate with all them. Right. First off, Jay Marie, I guess she was listening to our interview with Ramana Hussein here. Uh, she says, everyone does not think voting is as important as other people do. I don't get why people don't get that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to ask Joanna Klonsky about that. That is true. That's the whole point. Uh, some people just don't care. You know what I'm saying? I'm utterly obsessed with this. This is my life since I was like, Eight when I first became obsessed with politics, so I I, I think it's you're pretty much right. When sixty eight percent of the people in the city of Chicago don't vote in the mayoral election, I think it's proving her point that most people don't care. Our good buddy Pat Rod weighed in. He's been listening since the beginning here because he uh, is talking about you talking about bewitched. He said, "Oh God, not Larry." <laughs> And Pat Rod also said, I don't get why people think voting isn't important. Uh, and finally here, uh, we got a message. Uh, I This may count as spam. I'm not sure. It's from Donna. Donna says, uh, all our sinners choose wrong under God's wrath. You can't save yourself only. Only way to be saved is through faith in eternal, sinless Son, Jesus Christ. Mm, okay. She's weighed in on there. All right. Well, thank you for and that one. Listeners of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Thank you for uh, listening if yeah. you're an actual person. All right. Now to the big announcement. The Ben Jarofsky Show has reached 1,000 likes mm-hmm. on Facebook. Yeah. That is right, people. After we were blown up the last one. But let's not talk about okay. that. Okay. Let's all not right. live in the past. Okay. We had like 4,500 on the last Whatever. one. Yeah. We're mm-hmm. into 1,000 now, all so right? So we get uh, giving away cars? No, we're not oh. doing that. Oh, also, by the way, our buddy Pete in Plainfield, who gave us that little Hot Wheel Mustang, yeah. he's listening. How's it going, Pete in Plainfield? All right. Love that card. All right. And so let's get to uh, the caption contest here, as we always do here. Uh, well, we hit 1,000. I said we have a caption contest. This time, uh, the picture just begging for your caption on the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook page is a picture that was taken, I believe, yesterday or maybe two days ago. I'm not sure. When uh, Lori Lightfoot began her transition and met up with Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Oh, yeah. That's a great picture. All right. Yeah, the picture yeah. is Mayor Rahm holding, uh, touching Lori Lightfoot's back as they walk into yeah. some room. I'm I'm not sure what's going to happen there, but that is the picture begging for your caption. Uh, I'll try and uh, interrupt you guys here a little later on to read some of the captions. But once again, head over to the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook page at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. Ben, spell that last name for him. J-O-R-A-V as in victory, as my beloved Bulls will do tonight, S-K-Y. So you have no excuse. If you're listening to this and you've yet to like the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook page, give it a like. Leave us a caption. We're going to be reading them on the air. And uh, when we last uh, did the show, on radio we couldn't curse 
Uh, if you send us one that's <laughs> cursing curse. and it's not too crazy, yeah. we'll read it. Jo- all right? Yeah. Jo- jo- Joanna, feel free to curse. I We're podcasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I'll put explicit. I'll put explicit on <laughs> it. We've already we had a couple it. people already do that. Oh, uh, hey, we're talking show. to you, Monroe Anderson. Yeah, Monroe Anderson. Uh, yeah, so. I'm going to try to keep it clean, but I make no guarantees. But. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Joanna Klonsky, uh, I'm now putting you in the position of being spokesperson for all millennials everywhere. Are we wrong? <laughs> Is my generation wrong to shame millennials into voting or to feeling they should vote? Yeah, you're wrong because it's an ineffective approach. And there have been a million scientific studies to demonstrate this. Shaming people into voting doesn't work. Shaming millennials doesn't work. By the way, millennials are older than you think. (laughs) I'm a millennial. I'm 34 years old, kids. I'm a millennial. I'm 35. Yeah. So if you're talking about young voters, 18 to 35, you got to start a little earlier than millennials now. Okay, so what are they, Zs? You're in Z range, buddy. Zs. Young people, young people don't vote in response to shame from old people. Well, let Actually, me ask you this. Young people don't do anything in response to shame from old people. But they when try they to shame old people. That's what I just. It's in other words, it, it's a, it's not a, it's a. What is it? A one-way street with the younger people? They are not above trying to shame. Like for instance, on this point, they will try to shame older people about shaming them into voting. Shame on you for trying to shame me into voting. Yeah, I mean, let's just leave shame out of the process of voting. It doesn't it's not a useful tactic. It actually can depress the vote. So don't do it. All right. Well, let's talk about that. Sixty-eight uh, percent did not vote. I believe. I I, not, I don't have the exact number. I think it's thirty-two percent turnout. Am I, is that about right in this yeah, last mayoral I election? Ha- I don't even. I haven't even had time to like to take that deep dive. Go yeah. to the grocery store yet, or like, you know, make my bed since uh, the election. So I don't know. So I do you have any sense what what tactic does work to get people to come out and vote. Yeah, the same thing that works to get people to do everything else, which is organizing, inspiring people, connecting, meeting people where they're at, understanding why they feel disengaged, finding something to help them feel engaged. Like people don't vote for a reason because they don't think that it makes a difference. They don't believe in the process. There's no one who they find inspiring or they've just, they don't know enough information. They don't have access to the information. Those are the problems that you have to solve if you want to increase turnout. You don't increase turnout by doing the whole, if you don't vote, you don't have the right to complain, blah, blah, blah. All those cliches are so played out. They don't work. Give it up. Well, in this last election then, uh, since so uh, few people voted, relatively speaking, let's say 32%. But let's just say it was 32%. I'm not quite sure where it was. Yeah, it was in the... 32 to 34%. It was lower than it was in February. Well, let's see when all the vote-by-mail ballots come in and are counted as well. Because remember, in February, everyone was lamenting lowest turnout in history. Then the vote-by-mail ballots came in, and people were like, oh, actually, it was decent. All right, let's say it was 35% turnout. I'm upping it up. The point is is that more people don't vote than do vote by a significant number. Do you think that's expressing a feeling I think that I know the answer to this one, uh, that Chicago government has not in any real meaningful way met needs of people in this city, met their concerns, been where, you know, seen the world that they live in and try to address uh, policies so it, if, uh, it improves the livelihoods of people in the city? Well, I think we're dealing with a long legacy of people being disengaged intentionally um, for, you know, I always tell the story of like when the day that Mayor Daley announced he was retiring, I was 25 or 26 years old at that point, and I had grown up here in a pretty political family, and I was shocked because it had never occurred to me that he could one day retire, and I felt so disengaged 
from the process because he was just like, you also can't vote to approve or elect like God. Um, and so I, I think that's part of the Chicago political culture. It has been for a long time. It's just like decisions are made on high in a back room that has nothing to do with you. If you're not from a particular family or from a particular organization, there's no on-ramp for you. Mm -hmm. I think that's really changing, and I think it's changed changed a lot in the last 10 years, particularly because there's been a lot more laws to improve voter access. So now we have online voter registration. Now we have same-day voter registration where you can, if you're not registered, you can show up at the polls and register and then vote right then. You have a grace period if you're not registered. After the deadline, you can still you know, go to a certain location registered. And now we're moving into implementing automatic voter registration. Those things really do change the process where people used to, you know, if you want young people to vote, we didn't have online voter registration in Illinois until a couple of years ago. You're telling me you want young people to do a thing and it's not available online? <laughs> okay, well, what kind of message does that send? So yeah. those are the kinds of things that I think we're seeing yeah. them finally start to get addressed. But it's been a long time coming. Those things don't get changed overnight. It's a it's a real culture shift that we're trying to make happen here. All right, and you, you alluded to uh, Joanna, Mayor Daley stepping down. Um, and 2011, the mayoral election, uh, you were a very young political strategist and you worked for Miguel de Valle, uh, who got, I believe, 10 to 11 percent of the vote. I'm doing this from memory. but yeah, it, was it was like 10. 10. Okay. I don't remember either. I inflated it now. to 11. Give him a go. He got 30 percent. I'm just, no, let's just inflate a no, little less. He got 41 percent. He basically won the election. Yeah, he won with a recount. Uh, but anyway, did not do very well. I voted for him, but uh, that just shows you, you know, why he wouldn't do well, anybody I vote for usually loses. Um, this time around, you worked for Lori Lightfoot. She was triumphant. Uh, what has changed, if anything, in the city of Chicago, where Miguel Devaya, a candidate you supported in 2011, gets trounced, and the candidate you supported, uh, who probably had lesser name recognition than Devaya did, at least at the start of this cycle, uh, was victorious? Well, Okay, so this is actually my third mayoral election. I'm one of the few weirdos in this town who've worked on three discrete, separate mayoral campaigns. Um, so I did. I was Miguel Delvalle's press secretary. I worked on Chuy Garcia's campaign in 2015 in the runoff, mm -hmm. and then I I was a consultant to Lori's campaign, which obviously was just extremely victorious. Um, seeing, I think there's a very clear through line between those three campaigns, and some along the way where. There was this movement for reform and for progress, progressive policy change that was building over time and gaining slowly, slowly gaining momentum. I think there's also that through line also goes through the election of Fritz Kagi and the unseating of Joe Berrios back in 2018. For Cook County Assessor. For Cook County Tax Assessor. So where you're seeing um, machine structures that have had a stranglehold on the political process in Chicago for decades, slowly begin to unravel. Mm -hmm. um, and I really think that this was like the final, you know, so much of that machine stuff really fell apart in this Lori Lightfoot election. Um, but I think that it started in many ways in that 2011 when when the it was the first open mayoral seat since the election of Harold Washington in 1983. We sort of got Rahm imposed on us. It was really difficult to, he had so much money so much the the political power structure was so united behind him and it was really difficult for anyone i mean miguel del valle i think in any other environment he was the second highest ranking elected official in the city he was the city clerk at the time mm -hmm. he was the highest ranking latino elected official in the city at the time he had been a state senator he was well respected he was well known 
in another environment, he should have been a, a very strong candidate for mayor. Mm -hmm. Now he was also a reformer and he's, you know, a progressive and he wasn't, he, all of the corporate interests were never gonna dump money on his head. But that's where that election was. And I think that um, the thing that was unique and interesting about this 2019 mayor's race that we just completed is that the power structure in Chicago was never unified behind one person or the other. There was Daly, some folks were with Daly, some folks were with Susana Mendoza. There was Tony. Most of the powerful interests in the city were not united, mm -hmm. were, were not with Lori. Almost none of them were. Yeah. Actually, none of them were until the runoff. Until the run, and then they and so, all came running. And so she was able to take advantage of the divisions and the power structure and the powerful, most powerful class of the city. Well, there was all, run up the middle. Something else, uh, you, when you were going down the list of attributes uh, uh, for Miguel de Valle, and I'll put another one on there, and I mean this sincerely, he's a gentleman. Uh, he, he always treats people with respect. 100%. He listens to what they say. And I recall this. Uh, at the time, it was used against him. Rom, let's be, let's face it, folks. I'm, I'm not going to swear, D. But Come on, Ben, swear. It, no, say it. not going to do it. Everyone can't accept Ben. That's the rule. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, when we make our return to radio, I don't want to get in trouble uh, with bad habits. But anyway, um, Rom was a jerk. And he was proud of it back in 2011 and I remember writing an article about this uh, do, do is can Chicago have a nice guy like Miguel de Valle be mayor or do you have to be quote unquote a tough jerk like Mayor Rahm and uh, I think the electorate in 2011 sort of bought into the idea well we had a tough jerk daily it was mean and got red and yelled at people and so we got to continue that tradition uh, have we weeded ourselves, you know, we divorced ourselves from that uh, notion, Joanna? I always kind of thought that was BS, to be honest with you. I mean, people, yeah, Chicago people like to like a tough guy or a tough person. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. There's there's a way to be tough. There's a way to stand up strongly for what you believe in and be demanding and demand certain things happen without, you know, saying, calling people names, without saying nasty things about them without putting, you know, uh, I forget some of the famous Ramisms telling people to take their tampons out or whatever. I think there was an F word in front of the tampon. Take their F and tampons yeah. out. You know, you don't have to, you can say, you can be firm and be tough and not be messed with mm -hmm. in a very Chicago way without being a jerk to people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, that's the thing that maybe this election shows. Because Lori is no pushover. She's a tough lady, but... That's different from the stuff you're talking about. Well, you like to try to you treat people with respect as much as possible. And I, and when I put this question to Miguel Devay, I'm just going to bring this up because I love his response so much. He said that I, I'm paraphrasing Miguel Devay. I graduated from Tule High on the northwest side of Chicago, rough and tumble school. Ron went to New Trier. So who do you think is tougher, Ben? I remember him telling me that. I remember that too. Actually, I'll never forget it. Yeah, I remember it very well. No, I mean. Miguel is nice, but he was no pushover either, right? I mean, he, I remember being on the campaign trail with him and him telling me some of the stories about what it was like growing up for him and in the neighborhood at the time. Um, so I think he always sort of thought that that characterization that he was nice and Rom was mean was always nonsense anyway yeah. and irrelevant to governing. All right. Now, um, here we are. We could talk uh, local politics forever with Joanna Klansky, political strategist. And she was in the last term. I don't know if you're going to still do this. Uh, the, no, she's shaking her head. No, she's not even going to get the I question out. Uh, the spokesperson for the Progressive Caucus in the city council. I don't even know if we're going to have it. We're still going to have a Progressive Caucus in the city council? Yes, we're still going to have a Progressive Caucus. I don't know what my role is going to be moving forward, but 
Um, I'm always going to be Team Progressive Caucus. I'm excited to see what happens. They've picked up a bunch of new, there's a, well, a whole bunch of new progressive faces that yeah. are going to join the, the the progressive movement in the city council. I think it's awesome. Yeah, it's going to be a different city council, that is for sure. Well, before but we transition into national news, you okay. know who that alderman was that uh, said, uh, what was it yesterday about, uh, hey, take it in the... Take it easy on these council meetings. Remember, they're giving Lightfoot advice. Oh my goodness! Was uh, that was quote. Yeah, the, yeah, we had so much fun with it was that. The yeah. mysterious alderman. Yeah, it, well, it was. Uh, what they revealed it? No, I don't. Oh, know. Uh, we were having fun with that one uh, with McDumkey yesterday, Joanna, because uh, this, some alderman was uh, interviewed by Fran Spielman in the Sun Times. He or she, I don't know, the the, the gender wasn't revealed. Uh, was so I'll just say they. Uh, they said, you know, yeah, well, what, if Lori doesn't do what I want to do or something like that, I'm gonna da 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 da. She's got to treat us. With respect i'm like oh well, you've got so much guts why don't you yeah, say who you put are your name on it. Yeah. yeah no you're right i mean i think people what's different right now is there's a lot of uncertainty and it's making people antsy a lot of aldermen are used to being controlled or they're mm-hmm. they're used to a certain dynamic um rom has always really his staff has always really micromanaged the city council down to the level of like handing out talking points for individual aldermen and saying like i want you to say these exact words and People just don't know what Lori's relationship is going to be with city council yet, and that's making people anxious. I think we're going to see people calm down in the next couple of weeks as they start to get their feet back under them and start to realize that, you know, what's important here is getting the mandate, the progressive policy mandate. Lori was just elected with 74% of the vote. She's got a mandate, and she wants to get it done now. Well, I got to tell you, uh, it was obsessive behavior by Rahm in terms of getting the vote on. When Sue Garza, alderman, alderwoman, I should say, uh, Sue uh, Garza was here last week, she told a story, Joanna, about how Rahm was really pressuring her to vote on the Lincoln Yards deal. She didn't want to. She wanted to vote no. And he goes, I named a school after your dad. Oh, my God. And it was no, just, he didn't. You're yeah, kidding no, me. No, she, she was in that chair, and she told us that. That very story. That's called chutzpah. Uh, I. That's a nice way of calling it. You know, to say the very least. Uh, but whatever. So I would that's hope. Outrageous. It is outrageous. You only need twenty six votes, Madam Mayor or Mister Mayor. You only need twenty six votes. You don't have to break everybody's arm to get the like forty eight to two or something or fifty to nothing. It's a little obsessive behavior. All right, she's our expert on creepy behavior by male politicians. We haven't even got to that because we talked yeah. about could talk to Joanna about politics forever and ever. Let's talk about it. Let's start at the top. Um, <laughs> Joe Biden, Vice oh, President, boy, former, Uncle Joe. <laughs> well, we call him Grandpa Joe grandpa here on this Joe. show. But well, whatever. I actually have a Grandpa Joe, so I don't want to. My grandpa is Grandpa Joe, so I don't want to sully grand, actual Grandpa <laughs> Joe's name. Man, Joe Biden, what are you doing, bud? Just, I just want you to know. I had permission to hug Lonnie. Anyway. All right, there we oh, go. Cool. So let's just make a very hilarious joke. Oh, out but of wait, it. there's more. By the way, he gave me permission to touch him. Right? <laughs> Two. Uh, so, all right, let's just start. I at just, the t- yeah, why? that's, that's why? Joe. That's his speech. Uh, was it yesterday? I was today with the IBEW. All right. Okay. That was today's speech. We played it. Uh, and um, so clearly focus groups. That's what I was trying to think of earlier where they put groups of people, voters together to get a general sense of what would work as a message. Um, so, all right. Your, your reaction. You actually sent me the story. Uh, always my uh, uh, ace, ace creep <laughs> reporter in the field. At all hours. I'm like, Ben, did you see this creepy <laughs> article about this creepy guy uh, creepy guy being our vice creepy president our former vice president joe oh biden God. all right just so folks who may not have seen it uh, remind them what was in the story okay so here's what happened in uh let's say 
Former Nevada Lieutenant Governor candidate Lucy Flores tells the story in New York Magazine last week that Joe Biden came up behind her and like took a deep inhale and smelled her hair and then gave her a big slow kiss on the back of her head at an event. This is during her 2014 campaign. And so she wrote this essay about how she, that made her feel embarrassed and, and shocked and alarmed. Um, the quote was, I wanted nothing more than to get Biden away from me. Um, Biden said he has no memory of having acted inappropriately towards her, but added that if he was in the wrong, he would, quote, listen respectfully. You'll notice that is not an apology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has yet to actually apologize. Um, he did post a weird YouTube video that was not an apology, but it was like a two minute rambling speech about how social mores have changed. And um, whereas showing physical affection was a way to show support in the past, now he knows he needs to be more mindful, but he never says sorry. Um, and it's weird. It was, uh, I thought it was a, a, wrong, a wrong-headed response. Um, and then today, apparently at this event where he also made a bunch of really inappropriate jokes as Dennis just played, he also doubled down. He said, somebody asked, do you, oh, I should mention, there are also a bunch of other accusations very similar to Lucy Flores's. Mm-hmm. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven that I've just pulled up right now. Mm. So seven, this is kind the, of a thing that he does. Wait, these are seven. Uh, it's seven women saying women, that he's okay. done weird stuff. It's not exactly, you know, sexual assault, but it's like he um, did different weird stuff to make people feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable touching. Yeah. Um, where he, one woman said he squeezed her shoulders, complimented her smile, and held her for a beat too long. Um, that kind of thing, which has led to a lot of debate over, okay, well, where's the line? You know, is this sexual harassment? Is this inappropriate? If it's making people uncomfortable, it's making people uncomfortable. But how do you know, how do you be affectionate and friendly towards people? Particularly if you're doing retail politics, you're on the campaign trail, you're touching people all the time in some way, shape or form. So how do you know? And, you know, it's really struck a chord with me because I work in politics and I deal with guys like Joe Biden. There's always a guy like that. And it's sometimes it's, it's hard to name it because it's not exactly sexual in nature, but it makes you uncomfortable and you notice it. So how do you deal with that? So it seems like Biden has a habit of doing weird stuff that makes people a little uncomfortable. And it's in that gray zone where you can't quite say it's sexual or there's debate about whether it's sexual. But it, if it's making people uncomfortable, it's making people uncomfortable. And that's an important point. So that's kind of what's been going on with us. Today, he said he was he was asked if he owed these women a direct apology. He said, I'm sorry I didn't understand more. I am not sorry for any of my intentions. I'm not sorry for anything that I ever have done that I have ever done. I've never been disrespectful intentionally to a man or a woman. That's not the reputation I've had since I was in high school, for God's sakes. What was the opening line? I'm sorry for what? I'm sorry I didn't understand more. I'm sorry. I I'm didn't not sorry under- for any of my intentions. Uh, wow, what 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 is the distinction there? I it, it, that obviously 
Well, I should strike obviously from the sentence. My and this could be my cynicism. Ramana and I just had a conversation about cynicism, Joanna. Yeah. Every comment uttered by a politician these days, I have the feeling, uh, is constructed by a team of speechwriters who tell him or her what to say, with the possible exception of Donald Trump, who seems to have done very well from just doing Donald Trump. So do you think what Joe Biden said was Joe Biden talk, or do you think that was some kind of crafted speech by a speechwriter intended to say all the right things and get him out of this situation. I think that the video that he posted yesterday or two days ago was a scripted thing. Mm-hmm. It was pretty clearly scripted. I think this comment that he just made seems like it was off the cuff. That's not the reputation I've had since I was in high school, for God's sake. I strongly doubt that somebody wrote that talking point for him. Yeah, for God's sake. Well, yeah, Joe yeah. Biden always adds those little, that's his thing, right? Yeah. He'll always add, for God's sake. Yeah. He has little, you know, like ad libs that he likes to throw around. The point is, is not really to me whether it's scripted or not. The point is how often you see these situations and how rare it is that the, uh, that the person who has done wrong actually knows how to mm-hmm. issue an appropriate apology yeah. that acknowledges that harm was done, that explains why it was done, that identifies what is being done, what the person has done to make sure it doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. And that actually says the words, I'm sorry for X, Y, and Z. It's extremely rare. Yeah. And it's not that hard, but it's very hard for a lot of these men. Hi. But Joanna Klotsky is in the studio with me, political strategist. My uh, next guest, David Ferris, has walked in the studio. I always love when my guests show up early. Uh, and uh, But we're going to continue our conversation with Joanna before we bring David on. Uh, Joanna, I have to ask you this. In your humble opinion... Do you think all these revelations about uh, Joe Biden and his behavior disqualify him to be uh, the the Democrats nominee? I don't know the answer to that, but to me, that's not even the disqualifying thing. It's what we have an opportunity right now. There are so many women running. There are so many diverse. There's such a diverse field of Democrats running. Why go back? Why go back to the old, you know, previous generation that's already had power. He's already been the vice president. He's had his time. So to me, that's what it is more than anything else. Yes, I have some serious concerns about whether this stuff is going to, first of all, make him politically, it's all a political liability for him on the trail. Mm -hmm. But two, do we need to, I mean, why in this moment? (laughs) Why? When we have so many other options, we don't need to do this. So there's a lot of people right now doing the whole like, well, we need Biden because he's the most viable opponent to Trump. Well, listen, okay, guys, none of you know, nobody knows that right now. Yeah. Everyone's just guessing. Yeah. Let's admit that. Remember the time when uh, Ann Coulter was on Bill Maher and they asked her who she thought had a best chance of winning and she said Trump and the entire audience like laughed at her. So you never know. You you never know. Uh, Well, speaking of Trump, he, uh, his front page story headline says, finding Biden in familiar fix president jabs and Donald Trump uh, sent out a meme. I don't know if you saw this one on, uh, uh, on Twitter, (laughs) Donald Trump, master of Twitter, uh, making fun of Joe Biden. And so Donald Trump is going to try to use this 
Which is so ironic since he's literally a serial sexual predator and we all know that. He's just never been held to account for any of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before I bring in David to join the conversation, and I really hope you stick around, Joanna, because we're going to be talking national politics uh, and what the Democrats should do uh, to fight Donald Trump and win back the White House. Uh, What other updates are are there in the creep report beat uh, aside from Joe Biden? (laughs) The creep beat. Well, the last thing that I want to say about the Joe Biden situation is the role Alyssa Milano has played. I don't know if you caught this. Alyssa Milano, actress, former star of Charmed. Mm -hmm. uh, Who's the boss? Who's the boss? Who's been a real outspoken, you know, um, advocate on some Me Too issues and other feminist issues. But, you know, retweeted this crapola non-apology apology video from Joe Biden with some some, some praise for him. And she's tweeted a couple of times defending him. And it's just the classic thing of like, well, Joe Biden's never been, or XYZ guy has never been inappropriate with me, Mm -hmm. and therefore he is absolved. And it's just the worst thing that women can do to each other. Yeah, we've talked about this so many. It's my favorite theme, because it it drives me bonkers. It's like, just because it hasn't happened to you doesn't mean it's not a thing. Mm -hmm. Don't do this anymore, women. Like, it doesn't help, it hurts. Alyssa Milano, you don't have to do that. It doesn't, you're not helping anyone. She, I, I don't know what is motivating her to do. I don't know if she has like a great relationship with Joe Biden or maybe she thinks Joe Biden is the she best. she loves Joe Biden. She huh? loves Joe Biden. Well, there is something about Joe Biden uh, that is in a bizarre way kind of lovable. I, the Onion used to make, I don't know if you ever saw The Onion, they turned Joe Biden into a, a, a what, a car geek and who loved working on muscle cars and stuff like that. There was just something about Joe Biden. Uh, I think he is like a natural rival to Trump. He's like a different type. Uh, I'm not saying he should be the nominee. I, you raised some good points. A lot of people come on this show say the same thing, uh, that we should look to the future and we not should go back to the past uh, to beat Donald Trump. But the, the poll, the first poll result uh, that Dennis cited, 56% of of voters or Democrats, I don't know if it was voters or Democrats, said that uh, he should not, this should not disqualify him. So my guess is they did a focus group or some kind of internal poll, jo- uh, Joanna, and that's when they decided uh, to make jokes about it. They figured out they got it behind them, now they're going to make yeah, jokes about it. Yeah, that may well be the case. That's the problem with when you have people making decisions based on polls and alone without social context and without having like women who have lived experience with this sort of situation in the conversation. That's Joanna Klonsky. I'm Ben Jarofsky. David Ferris is in the studio. I hope Joanna will stick around. I don't know how busy she is. We're going to take a break. I got to roll. Bye, guys. Oh, all right, Joanna Klonsky, it's great to have you here. When we come back, we'll have David Ferris. We'll be talking national politics. I'm going to ask him the Nancy Pelosi question. Am I too enamored with Nancy Pelosi? Look, he's already ready to answer. Oh, I wanted to hear Joanna on this one. Anyway, uh, we'll be right back with David Ferris. Hey there, producer Dennis here. Thanks for finding and listening to the brand new Ben Jarofsky Show. All right, so here's how this works. The Ben Jarofsky Show live streams on the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel Tuesday through Friday, 1 until 3 p.m. Once the show is over, you can listen to the replay on our YouTube channel or we throw it online for you to download by 4 p.m. 
Where can you download The Ben Jarofsky Show, you may be asking yourself? Well, you may be asking yourself a fantastic question. You can find previous Ben Jarofsky shows and guest interviews through several outlets. The Chicago Sun-Times Online, chicago.suntimes.com. The Chicago Reader Online, chicagoreader.com. And wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, pick one. Just search for The Ben Jarofsky Show. J-O-R-A. V is in victory, S-K-Y. So, let's recap. Tuesday through Friday, 1 until 3 p.m., live streamed on the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel and downloadable by 4 at chicago.suntimes.com, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast. Yes, the Ben Jarofsky Show is back. We're live and downloaded. Tell your friends and enjoy the rest of the show. you would like to advertise with the Ben Jarofsky show and who wouldn't contact Tracy Bame at publisher at Chicago We have several advertising options for your business or organization. And quite frankly, we would love nothing more than to tell our listeners all about it. Once again, that's Tracy Bame at publisher at Chicago reader corp at C O R P as in Paul.com. To advertise with the Ben Jarofsky Show, the Chicago Reader, and the Chicago Sun Times. We look forward to plugging you. Okay, well, that came out kind of weird. More of the Ben Jarofsky Show live and downloaded in moments. Commercial break over. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun Times. And Joanna Klonsky has left the building. Joanna Klonsky has left the building, but David Ferris is here, sitting in her stead. David Ferris, Roosevelt University political science professor, author of the book "It's Time to Fight Dirty: How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics." Tells it like it is what Democrats should do. Stop rolling over. Let the Republicans run all over you. It's basically the theme of the David Ferris book. Uh, David, welcome back. Always fun talking politics with you. Okay. Great and to be here. Um, I got to start at the top. I had booked David to be on the show. Uh, and after I had booked him to be in the show, I went on one of my riffs where I was extolling the virtues of Nancy Pelosi. And one of our listeners, Bab, said, bring David Ferris on the show. He'll set you straight about Nancy Pelosi. Hey, Babbers, what's happening? So anyway, Bab, here he is, the man, the myth, the legend, David Ferris in the studio. Uh, so what's your take on Nancy Pelosi? I mean, I'm also a Nancy Pelosi fan. So, oh, sorry, uh, Pat. I, I, I hate to disappoint you. <laughs> okay, well, let's um, talk about why are you. So, I mean, I think that she's, uh, at this point, a pretty legendary leader in, in the House of Representatives. And I think that she, um, you know, was largely responsible for the Democratic strategy in 2018 that got the House back. And she's done a great job keeping the caucus together during the Trump administration. So you have not had a lot of Democrats peeling off to vote with the president, um, to betray the Democrats. You know, I think that she wields a lot of influence behind the scenes um, in, in terms of making sure that there's a unified message coming out of the Democratic Party about the Trump administration's policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's great. I'm, I'm also 
I'm a big fan of HR1, the, the big voting and, and corruption reform bill that the Democrats passed out of the House. And it, it actually it went beyond what I thought Pelosi and the Democrats would actually do. And it doesn't go far enough, in my, in my humble opinion, but I think it's, it's further than I thought the Democrats would go. Um, you know, it has procedures for re-enfranchising every former felon in America. It has procedures for uh, effectively counterfeiting these voter ID laws. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see them go about it a different way. But anyway, the point is, um, I think that she's doing as much as she can with the, with the role that she has. Um, and I assume the people are upset with her because she said, you know, it, it might not be the time for impeachment if the Mueller report doesn't you know, charge the president with a crime or, mm -hmm. or have something obviously impeachable. And, you know, I, this is a really tough question, the question of impeachment, you know, because we, we know that the, the president will not be removed from office, right? So the, the in the Senate, right? Mm -hmm. There's no way that we're peeling off, you know, uh, 15, no, 18 Republican senators, uh, if not more, to, to vote with Democrats to take the, to take Trump out of office. Or have every Democrat vote. Right. The thing right. about Joe Manchin, you know what I mean? Every yeah. Democrat in the Senate would have to vote. You need those 47, you need 20 Republican senators to, mm -hmm. to remove him from office. So, I mean, give me a list of names that you think people, like, that's a short list, you know, um, like Lisa Murkowski, maybe. No, uh, no way. You know, Mitt Romney, mm -hmm. maybe, but probably not, right? No. Probably the number is zero. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so what you have to come back to as a question of, you know, does the, do the impeachment proceedings in the House justify politically the risk that Democrats are taking by impeaching the president? Um, and, you know, I, I think that the, the, the move to say, like, we want to see the Mueller report before we make this decision is very smart. Because had Democrats, uh, you know, uh, gone through, if, if, if we were already in the midst of impeachment proceedings when this bar letter came out, um, I, think, I think that would have made the Democrats' position even weaker on this question. And the reality is, this, there there may be stuff in the Mueller report that details, you know, very clear obstruction of justice. That that I would say, go ahead and you know do the impeachment, impeach him in the House. I, I think that there's, um, I think that there's reason enough in terms of the future of the the American democratic experiment to to at least be on record as a party, as saying, you know, we can't have the president doing this, mm -hmm. you know, even if you lose in the Senate. Um, I can also see the case that you know, you you don't want to give the president this this momentous victory when he is acquitted in the Senate by the full Senate, uh, sort of exactly what happened to, to Bill Clinton in, in uh, 98, 99. So, you know, I don't, I don't have extremely strong opinions about, about whether Democrats should impeach the president. I, too, would like to see the Mueller report. And despite, you know, a week of, of us all saying it's, oh, we're in the post-Mueller world, it's like, we're not. No. Um, no one has seen the report um, except Bill Barr and, and Rod Rosenstein All right, before and people we get, that wrote it. Yeah, before we get to the polls, uh, we're a lot of Mueller questions for you, but uh, something you said, I just took notes on it. Uh, the unified message that she's done a good job, Nancy Pelosi, in your humble opinion, of uh, having a unified uh, message from the Democrats in response to Donald Trump. And I agree with you. Uh, on that point, I think the criticism from my friends of the lefty persuasion is that she hasn't uh, been advancing the democratic ideals and sort sort of like um, the uh, the Green New Deal, for instance. She's not been advancing the ideals of uh, the the new freshmen, the freshman uh, representatives that have come in, like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, you know, be the foremost person on that one, um, that she sort of distanced herself from them. I have my opinions about that. What is your opinion about uh, how uh, she's reacted to these new ideals that the Democrats have put up forth? You know, I, I think that she's trying to walk a very a tough line. 
you know, because in, in, in very weir- real ways, the, the Democrats' majority in the House depends on a series of districts where they won very small victories in 2018 that are kind of moderate districts generally. And she doesn't want the party to get ahead of where public opinion is in terms of keeping the House in 2020, right? Because if we win the presidency and the Senate, but we lose the House back, mm-hmm. you know, we might as well, you know, we can prevent calamity, but we're not going to be able to do much of anything legislatively, including anything that Ocasio-Cortez and, and, and her friends want to do, which I, which I generally support. Um, but I also think the Green New Deal is right now, it's an idea. It's not a, it's not a policy. You know, um, the, the, the messaging coming out of Ocasio-Cortez's camp about what exactly is in the Green New Deal has changed a few times. You know, like that initial, the initial draft that Republicans made so much fun of about, you know, cows. <laughs> you know, we don't want plane, we don't want plane travel. Yeah. You know, um, I, you, would you really want, have wanted Pelosi to go out and, and introduce that as a bill the next day? Yeah. Or, you know, I think that she's gone further than than she might have in terms of, of saying like you know this is a this is a great this is a starting point you know um, but I'm obviously not going to pass this through the house tomorrow morning as a as a package without debating it without thinking the politics through um, I think there, there was no downside to the politics of the of the voting reform and the corruption reform bill that got passed with the green new deal with with anything like Medicare for all um, you know there there are legitimate downsides um, to, to passing that legislation and I think Pelosi may want some of that litigated in the primary rather than having the House of Representatives make the decision about what the policy platform of the next Democratic president is going to be. That is yeah. a very good point. Litigated in the primary, well put. Uh, in other words, let the Democratic voters uh, speak where they want the country to go, what direction they want the party to go. Of course, the problem, if you litigate it in the primary uh, from a, a uh, a strategist viewpoint is they may litigate it in a different uh, in, a, in a place that not all Democrats want to be. So, for instance, they may go toward a Biden-esque figure, somebody who's a centrist, uh, which would alienate uh, the left. And so we'd be in a situation quite similar to the one we were just emerged from in 2016. This is the challenge that all Democrats face, including Nancy Pelosi. You see, uh, do you see any way out of this one, uh, David? Well, no. I mean, you, you're never going to have a way out of it because, the, you know, the reality is America should have like four or five political parties. And we're, we're always going to have two parties in which we have crammed together a bunch of different coalitions with, with you know, very different ideological predilections. And so the, 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 the reality that there will always be a left, center and right of the Democratic Party is it will be with us today. It will be with us if we win in 2020. It will be with us if we lose in 2020. Um, I think it is, you know, it is fine for each of the factions in the party to push as hard as they as they think that they should to mm-hmm. fight for what they believe in. Um, it's it's not, I think, the role of the party leadership in the House, um, particularly when they're in the minority, um, to, to automatically take the side of one of those factions in all of these fights. Um, and so, you know, I, I like most of what's in the Green New Deal. Um, I'm, you know, I, I don't know if I'm for Bernie Sanders's version of Medicare for All, but I'm certainly for a a significant expansion of, of healthcare. And, you know, per- personally, because I have mixed feelings about s- some of these policies and, and you know, I'm, I'm open to persuasion, <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd actually really just like to hear people talking about them in mm-hmm. public. You know? I- like, if you believe a public option is better than Medicare for all, like, tell me why. If you believe that Medicare for all and the, and the way that Bernie wants to, to, to um, execute it is, is, the best, is the best way to go, 
you know, I have some questions like, how's it going to, how, how will it work? Mm -hmm. You know, what does the transition period look like? Do we have the civil service know-how? Um, do we have the capacity to bring 180 million Americans into the healthcare, into, into a nationalized healthcare system? I don't know that the answer is no, but I want to hear our candidates talking about that before I need to see Nancy Pelosi take a side. We had another uh, listener, and Beth, I hope you're listening because this question is for you, uh, who said we need to do a better job of distinguishing between these different uh, health proposals. You just named two. Let's talk about a little bit, help uh, listeners out a little bit, trying to distinguish these policies, general uh, health care policies that the Democrats have been advocating. One, Medicare for all. We associate that with, associate that with Bernie Sanders, too. The public option. What's the difference between a public option and Medicare for all? Sure. So Medicare for all would would extend the system that we use for for the elderly in America for those sixty five and older, um, and it would sort of grant all Americans automatic entry into that system. Um, and Bernie's plan essentially makes healthcare free at the point of service for for the consumer of healthcare. Um, it's similar to the system that they have in Canada. Um, it's similar in a lot of ways to the system they have in the UK. Uh, interestingly, it's 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 a bit different than a lot of the systems in continental Europe that um, that I personally think perform the best in terms of their sort of cost to to benefit ratios. Um, and so the the I think everybody you know if you remember in two thousand and eight about when Obama was like I want to do this this middle of the road mm -hmm. reform, um, he said if we could start over and do and do it from scratch, obviously. <laughs> We would choose a nationalized healthcare system. You know, um, the the problem is getting from where we are, um, where you you have this very extensive, complicated um, sort of intermediary system with with private for-profit insurers um, that that are responsible for the care of most American adults, and to get from that system to to Medicare for all is probably more complicated than we think it is. Mm -hmm. um, and not just not just politically, but also logistically. You know, like you got to. It's one thing to pass a law, but you also have to make sure that that law is implemented and, and carried out capably. Mm -hmm. um, and in 2013, <laughs> we couldn't even get a website running. Yeah, um, I remember for, we, for the exchange. Stumbled you know? at the start. Yeah, we stumbled at the start. I mean, we, we got it going, but it did take time. Mm -hmm. right? And this is a this is fundamentally a much more complicated endeavor. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's you know there's other options out there. Like during the the, the debate over the Affordable Care Act um, in 2009 and 2010. There were a lot of Democrats pushing for for a public option, um, where Democrat where where individuals could buy into, like basically a government insurance program. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it wouldn't extend Medicare to everyone. It would create this this uh, this you know publicly subsidized um, uh, insurance plan for you know the self-employed or the unemployed or people with disabilities that they could buy into if they if they weren't employed, um, because the the Obamacare exchanges. Are not a government program. The insurer is not the government. Mm -hmm. right? The government is sort of manipulating the market and helping individuals find a match in the private insurance industry. But it is not the American government itself running an insurance program, which is what the public option would be. So the big difference is that the public option is insurance, um, and Medicare for all is 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 free care at the point of service. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, the fear. Of, of many strategists uh, who just want the Democrats to win is that Medicare for all, as easy as a concept it is to uh, announce, and as many people who cheer it on, would mean electoral defeat for the Democrats because it would be easily exploited by uh, the Republicans into some sort of communist threat to uh, capitalism as it exists right now. Uh, do you share that fear uh, that so many strategists have? 
I mean, I, I always have fear of what Republicans are going to do. I think, you know, <laughs> it's good to have that fear. Yeah, it's good to be afraid, yeah. you know, because things happened recently uh, that should that should make us afraid. Uh, I think the reality is, Republic, whatever our health care plan is, Republicans are going to demonize it yeah. as as socialized medicine. It doesn't matter what we say. You know, we could say we want to tweak the ACA, and they're gonna they're gonna run around yelling about Venezuela and and you know uh, mass arrests and you know the speech police, whatever. You know, it, it, again. They have a playbook that they will use against any democratic policy. They will shoehorn that policy into a narrative about uh, about a government takeover of the system in question, and they will demonize you. And so I actually think there's a very good argument to be made um, that if you're going to pass something, it should be um, as aggressive and as expansive as you think the, the politics and, and, the, and the bureaucracy can bear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that we need to be significantly more aggressive than just a public option. Right? I think that there in some way needs to be, um, you know, a, a, a phase in of, of, a, of a nationalized insurance industry or, or a nationalized healthcare industry. Uh, I just don't know that it looks exactly like Bernie's plan. You know, yeah. uh, your book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, one of the themes of the book, uh, in general theme, is that Democrats have to employ many of their tactics. The Republicans employ, use it against the Republicans, because Democrats have always assumed that, well, it's like a fair fight. Let's have like this objective analysis of uh, health care and our needs and try to figure out the best way to do it. Uh, whereas Republicans look for the weakness of the Democrats and go at it and exploit it and pound it. So I have this question for for you. Let's say the roles were reversed and we had a uh, Democratic uh, president who was accused of colluding with Putin to win the 2016 uh, presidency, uh, the president election. And there was a report that we hadn't seen yet that was buried in the desk of the attorney general while they redacted it. So, you know, they <laughs> it, it would be uh, legal to release. Uh, how do you think Republicans would be reacting? I mean, I think we'd be three weeks into impeachment already. You know, I mean, I, I think that I think Republicans would have impeached the president in in the first two years, just given on what we've seen publicly the president of the United States do. Um, you know, this week there's this scandal about the about the security clearances that the Trump administration gave people like uh, like Jared Kushner. You know, the, the classic. It, it is a it is an administration full of like just like rich idiots children. You know. <laughs> Um, who are somebody was stupider than their parents, you know? Um, and so, you know, that's like a, that would be like a six month scandal, um, in a, in a democratic administration. Whereas I'm sure we're going to just turn the page and we'll, and and that won't really go anywhere. Yeah. Um, so I think that the president has done so many things like, and just out in the open, right? Like every weekend, this knucklehead gets on a plane, um, and has the taxpayers pay his private resort for yeah. him to hang out there, um, where he conducts government business, um, where you know, like state secrets are being discussed over over lobster with like these these knuckleheads who who buy into the uh, into the resort. It's it's absurd. I mean, it, it's happening. It's been happening every weekend of the Trump presidency, and, uh, and it's an outrageous scandal. And, and in addition to that, they're redacting portions of the Mueller report because these are secrets that we can't see. But right. it's okay for Donnie Trump to go down to Mar-a-Lago and. You know, cut deals with uh, other dignitaries. Yeah, right. Over a lobster. Yeah. Yeah. Or you just have people going into their, their buffet breakfast, and and you know they're they're three feet from the president. <laughs> they're totally unvetted by um, yeah. you know by our security services. Um, and it's you know it's just crazy. So um, yeah, obviously I think Republicans would have been more aggressive. Um, I, I think you also have to keep the politics of it in mind. You know, so one of the reasons I think it it may be worthwhile to impeach the president. 
um, is that the president's already unpopular, right? Like everybody looks at Clinton, and it's like, oh, it backfired on Republicans. And it's like, well, yeah, it backfired on Republicans because Clinton had like 65% approval at the time, and the and the public didn't agree that his relationship with Monica Lewinsky was was disqualifying in in any way. Now, maybe we were wrong about that in retrospect, right? I don't know. I was a teenager, but like you know. I can see a case that it should have been taken more seriously. But the reality is that this is a president that's been hovering between 37 and 43% approval for his entire presidency, largely because of his personality, because he's a jerk and people don't like him. Um, and so it's it's hard for me to, to see the case that, that any kind of impeachment proceeding is like is walking into a, a trap that mm-hmm. he's setting for us, because one, he's too stupid to set traps, and B, um, the, the public doesn't like him. Then they're likely to take the information that comes out of an impeachment proceedings um, and, and put that into the binder along with all the other things they don't like about this guy. Um, so a- anyway, uh, you know, it's, um, again, it is a really tough question uh, about what Democrats should do because they only have so much bandwidth. But, you know, they're not going to be, they're not getting any laws signed in, uh, by the president, so they might as well do something. Uh, David Ferris is my guest. When we come back, I'm going to ask him what Democrats should do about the Mueller report to turn it to their political advantage. We'll be right back. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you by the Chicago Sun-Times. For the latest in Chicago and Illinois news, sports, weather, and the latest in national news from a real Chicago frame of mind and real Chicago writers, check out the Chicago Sun-Times. Read the daily paper or online at chicago.suntimes.com. And hey, if you have a little extra cash, subscribe. And by the Chicago Reader. For a deeper dive in the daily Chicago news and for all of what's going on in this city, you gotta read the reader. Music, arts and culture, film, extensive event calendars, concert listings, and more, including weekly political columns from writers like Maya Dukmasova and, yes, our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader is free in newsstands and at chicagoreader.com. That's chicagoreader.com. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Mr. Jarofsky, take us to the uh, weekend. I love that music. Not only uh, does David Ferris, my guest in the studio, articulate uh, the progressive viewpoint uh, that he thinks Democrats should follow, not only does he teach political science at Roosevelt University, not only did he write a great book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, but he also plays a wicked keyboard. That's David Ferris playing on the keyboard. Oh, Big chops <laughs> Anyway, we have that keyboard there, Dave. I have no idea what it's doing. There's just some randomly sitting in the studio. So, if it starts playing itself, then, then we'll know we're on an episode yeah, of this world. Like, it's, oh, it's twi- you know, I didn't get to talk to a Romana about us. Oh, there's uh, always that's, next, that's that's next movie. That's a great movie. A great movie. I, yeah. There you go, David Fair. You, you liked it? I loved us. Yeah, it was a it's masterpiece. It was, it was deep, and I didn't get it. I'm going to have to see it again. Yeah, I like movies that are so deep, I have to read about them to figure it out, because I'm, I'm too literal-minded. You know, like I would have failed literary analysis. So I have to get up on like slate afterwards and be like, what did it actually mean? No, I know. I was moved and intrigued, but I don't (laughs) don't interpret it myself. Us is a deep dive movie. You got to watch it two or three times. It's like The Shining, uh, way before your time, Stanley Kubrick. In fact, he was influenced by The Shining. Mm -hmm. He stole huge chunks or paid homage to huge chunks of Stanley Kubrick. Anyway, all right, enough us talk. Uh, We were talking about 
Oh, I'm sorry, young man. You have an All update. Good. All yeah. good. We do have an update. Uh, first off, we are having a caption contest. Mm-hmm. We reached 1,000 likes on the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook page. What's up? Right. We came back. Hey, we're back at it. All right. And like I said, it's a grassroots campaign on this Facebook page. We're not paying for likes or anything like that. So it's grassroots, people. And to celebrate our 1,000 likes, we're having a caption contest. It's a Mayor Rom and, well, Mayor-elect Lori Lightfoot caption contest. It looks like uh, Rom has his hand on uh, Lori as he's walking her into some building. I'm not Sure. I think it's City Hall. Oh, it's okay. He's ushering go. her in oh, to meet with her for their transition there you go. meeting at uh, the mayor's office on the Guys, fifth floor. Guys, like 500 to... captions just came into my head for what we could do with that. So head over to the Facebook page. What we'll do is we'll keep this open until Tuesday's show. And on Tuesday's show, we will announce our winner of the caption contest. So get your captions in, you know, and we'll read them on the air. And like I was telling Ferris when we were on uh, right in the elevator, unlike the radio, we can curse now. So feel free to <laughs> curse on your captions. All right. <laughs> We'll read them if they're not too filthy. (laughs) Talking to you, Monroe Anderson, you dirty sailor. All right. So, and we do have an actual update, okay? Okay. Uh, Mayor-elect Lori Lightfoot uh, today during Fran the Woe Man Spielman show. Go check it out on Chicago Sun-Times if you've yet to, the Fran Spielman show. Uh, Today during on the show, she accused Alderman Ed Burke of the 14th Ward of attempting to organize the city council against her and threatened threatened to expose the alderman who dare conspire with him. Yeah, I guess uh, Lightfoot's learning real fast about this city. We have audio here of that. Uh, Shout out to Fran Spielman. Excellent work. Go check out the Fran Spielman show if you've yet to yet. Uh, Chicago.com Sometimes.com. Ed Burke is messing around. What's he up to? Is he trying to organize against you already? Well, I'm not surprised. Um, does that surprise you? Of course he is. That's what he does. But it's it's not like it's a surprise. It's not like I'm unaware of it. And he's going to have bigger fish to fry. I have every confidence that the charges are going to be brought um, in an indictment against him before um, the new mayor, before I'm sworn in. So he needs to focus on his own personal circumstances and stop trying to meddle around. We're not going to resurrect um, the Verdoliac 29 in the form of Ed Burke. That's not going to happen. But he's trying to do that, isn't well, he? Well, he can try all he wants. It's not going to happen. He's not going to be successful. He's matching you? Yeah, well, in any alderman who's going to try to align themselves with Ed Burke at this time, th- we're going to make sure that that gets very public and exposed, and they're going to have to explain to the public why it is that they're aligning with them against the voters of this city. I tell you what, Joanna said it. She's not going to be pushed around. Oh, no, let me just say this right now. I just have to say this, and uh, following up on what Lori Lightfoot said, any alderman, now, wait, let me back up. I've known to criticize uh, aldermen in the city of Chicago from time to time, but any alderman who is so dumb that he or she would hitch his or her political wagon to Ed Burke at this moment in time... Hey, Alderman, did you see what happened to Tony Preckwinkle on last Tuesday's election? She got 25% of the vote. He's exceedingly unpopular. If you are dumb enough to hook yourself to Ed Burke, then you deserve to lose. Unbelievable. I have to believe that Lori is using... Let me strike that. I'm wondering if Lori's just using that as an attempt to undercut any attempt by any alderman to join, to put together a faction that might... (laughs) 
counter her by just immediately putting Ed Burke's face on that body. That would be a very Trumpian move, David yeah, Ferris. He just, would be fighting dirty. He, yeah, he yeah. would be fighting dirty. Uh, Lori Lightfoot has read the David Ferris book. It's time <laughs> to fight dirty. Just You could have like a legitimate de- debate in the Chicago City Council where aldermen are ex- you know, exercising their legislative prerogative to speak up against a powerful mayor. So what does she do? She slaps Ed Burke's. Oh, that'll stop him right there. So, uh, But I do have to say, if Ed Burke is trying to organize a group of aldermen, shame, shame, shame on the aldermen who are dumb enough to join that party. Sorry, I just had to say that. Amen. <laughs> Why would you take the knives out against somebody that just won a three-to-one victory like yesterday? It's, My, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. And uh, uh, I really have a hard time believing that. T- uh, I lived through council wars, uh, what France Spielman was alluding to, or Lori Leffert was alluding to, those were in Harold Washington, uh, was elected mayor in 1983. Eddie Verdolak and Eddie Burke uh, put together an alliance of uh, white aldermen, largely on uh, racist uh, you know, glue, if you will, that c- kept them together. I lived through that. Uh, and uh, so the notion that we would return to that using Ed Burke, who's been so discredited uh, as a unifying force. I mean, it just I just can't imagine 26 aldermen would join forces behind Ed Burke unless they was we had our our former MP. Well, they just got elected so that they, they couldn't be impeached. Uh, David Ferris. All right. Let's go back to the Mueller report. Uh, the Mueller report uh, has not been released. Uh, the the attorney general, as we speak, is scrubbing it of passages that somehow or other would be um, would detrimental to our national security, whatever that means. Uh, meanwhile, Donald Trump is free to wheel and deal uh, in the Mar-a-Lago banquet room, cutting deals uh, for anybody to hear. Being taped by you know there was the, the what was it? There was a Chinese woman who came in. A woman from China was mm-hmm. she had like a, she had two cell phones and uh, you know. Yeah, it's uh, it's not welcome there anymore, I guess. Yeah, malware. Yeah, so anyway. um, So, all right, anyway, but we we have to be protected from uh, the truths about our own government, interesting, that my libertarian friends in the Republican Party are abiding by that. Uh, They want censorship. Isn't that interesting? They want censorship when it comes to protecting Donald Trump, but they don't want censorship when it comes to Alex Jones' ability to insult uh, Sandy Hook uh, parents. Isn't that interesting? Weird hypocrisy coming from the contemporary Republican Party. I just wouldn't have expected it <laughs> all right so what um yeah what what do you think the democrats should do here we are they're sitting on the Mueller report what do you think the democrats should do um well i mean they have to do everything that they can to get get the full unredacted Mueller report in, into the hands of members of congress you know um and i don't think that they should stop fighting that fight until they either succeed or until the election happens um we don't know how much Barr is is actually going to redact um, and I think that the reaction to what has already happened is a preview of what's to come. Right over the last couple of days, you've seen people from the Mueller report who put the Mueller report together, you know, leaking like crazy to the Washington Post and to the New York Times um, about how it's much worse for the president than Barr claims it is. Um, how it details extensive uh, acts of obstruction of justice. Um, how it details, you know, uh, overwhelming evidence of. of prolonged contacts between the Trump campaign and and, uh, and Russian nationals working to subvert our elections. So, you know, again, that'll keep happening, right? Barr can do whatever he wants. My, my feeling about this has always been that one way or another, the public will see uh, the full unredacted Mueller report. You think we point. will see that? Yeah, unredacted? See that, yeah. I mean, I could see that whoever leaks it will redact, like, legitimate... So it's passages that would legitimately jeopardize, um, you know, our intelligence collections efforts, 
or would would jeopardize the proceedings in an ongoing. You're presuming that there must be a passage in there that would do that. I don't know if I would make that assumption. But you're for this. Look, you're fighting fair, right. David Ferris. You're fighting fair. Right, right. I mean, I, 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 all I'm saying is, like, we don't want to leak something that's going to put somebody's life in danger. Fair I, I have no idea whether. That's yeah, like a phone not. number. If there's right. a phone number in there, you don't want the phone. Yeah, you redact yeah, exactly. the phone. Number. I mean, I can't imagine that's. You know, this thing is now rumored to be 700 pages long, so I can't imagine that's you know more than a few paragraphs in the whole report. So yeah, Democrats cannot settle um, for a heavily redacted report that is delivered to them by Bob Barr. Um, they cannot settle for a report where where the attorney general claims executive privilege for the president um, and redacts things that are um, that are not national security issues, but are just that just look bad for the president. You know, like they they have to they have to fight for that report until they get it. Um, and if they keep getting stonewalled by the administration, um, I think that they need to send out signals to, to to the folks that worked on the Mueller report and people who have a copy of it um, that they ought to you know. Uh, we got a Pentagon Papers, this stuff. Like, it just needs to be delivered to the New York Times or to the Washington Post, and it needs to just get out there. Because once it's leaked, it's leaked. You know, mm. this is the digital age. Yeah. You're not going to be able to get to get that thing out of Absolutely. the internet. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm surprised, I, I by the way, that, that hasn't happen. happened. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that goes unreported, I think, is that um, Mueller and Bob Barr are friends. I mean, they go back like 30 years. And so I, I think that there there may be a sense in the Mueller camp that, like, Wow, I can't I can't believe my friend Bob Barr <laughs> is doing this to me. Surely, yeah. in the next couple of weeks, he's going to make this right, um, and I'm not going to go nuclear until it is proven conclusively that he's trying to cover this up. But the damage that's already been done is extensive. You know what? Because what these guys got to do is they got a they got a week of free media, yeah. trumpeting the president's innocence and his you know quote unquote total exoneration. Um, and I was shocked that we didn't hear more from the Mueller camp pushing back against that. Yeah. Um, because that that's that was every headline in every paper in America for for several days. You know, in the same way that when you know when when Comey sent the letter to Congress right before the election about how they had reopened Hillary's email investigation, um, that was what people remembered. Rather than three days later, Comey was like, "Oh well, we looked and it was uh, <laughs> you're right, uh, it was just a double email or whatever." Sorry, was that your Comey that. invitation? No. <laughs> <laughs> I hate him too much to imitate him. Like I just, I can't do it. And um, yeah, he, you know, he tweeted on April Fool's Day that he was running for president, and I'm very gullible. So I had a like I had an internal meltdown for about. Five I was like, if I have to look at this guy for more than three seconds at a time, it's something you have in common with Donald Trump. Right. Exactly. It's not a lot of love I, for Comey. I do not like James Comey. All right, so. there's a political ramif- there's a political decision and sort of a good government decision, and I'm always uh, on the side of good government. As naive as that sounds, I'd like to see it because I want to know what went down. I just, you know, I, I'd like. I always want to know more about what's going on. I just not only here in City Hall. But uh, the national level, and I don't buy the uh, the fact that it's a violation of state security at all. But then there's the political decision, right. and the political decision. And I hear this from so many friends of the far left. I'm talking like the the far left, where they go so far left that they yeah. almost join the Republicans. Like the, the Glenn Greenwald. Yes, left. the Green. Yeah. yeah, I don't even know yeah. he's left anymore, but whatever. Yeah, whatever. Uh, he is. Whatever he is, that left is saying too much preoccupation with Putin, too much preoccupation with Russia, uh, and there's nothing there, et cetera, et cetera. Democrats shouldn't uh, hitch their wagon to this uh, point. So there's the political, uh, you know, we, uh, strategy. Uh, what do you think politically? You put on your uh, your again your strategist hat. Uh, politically, what's the best uh, road for the Democrats to to travel here? I think that the the best road to travel once we have the Mueller report 
um, is to connect the details of what the president has done to a, to a large sort of unfolding narrative about sort of public and open corruption of insider dealing mm-hmm. of a lot of stuff that should be illegal that is legal um, in terms of you know lobbying efforts or um, buying buying condos in, in Trump's buildings and it's just mm-hmm. it's obviously um, just money laundering. Um, I, I think that there's I think that the story that the president is a corrupt rich guy um, is is the political winner here. And it plays directly into the narrative that the, that the Democrats need to advance next year, which is that, um, you know, you know the, the meritocracy is dead. Like the, the procedures that we think guarantee fair play in America do not exist. And the president is the greatest example um, of how there is not a level playing field in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, you could connect it to the college admission scandal. Um, you could connect it to the housing crisis. Um, you could connect it to problems in the criminal justice system. Um, and and so to me, it's not that we need to go around for the next two years um, talking about whether or not the president is a Russian asset. I, I always thought that was sort of far-fetched. <laughs> and um, talk about how the president is is compromised. Yeah. Um, talk about how the president cares more about his business dealings um, with, with Russia and, and with other countries in the Russian orbit than he does about you know, the American national interest. You know, so you, you use the Mueller report, you take pieces of it, um, and you, you build a case um, that, that the president is not on the side of working people, that the president is out for himself, he's out for his friends, he's out to get richer, which is what he's using the presidency for. Mm-hmm. Right? There is a Trump hotel down the street from the White House um, that you know other foreign dignitaries are, are coming in, pouring money into, mm-hmm. that's making the president richer. Um, and that, to me, is just absurd. Uh, you have multiple criminals in, in the cabinet of the president of the United States. You have uh, Alex Azar, who's, who's covered up uh, Jeffrey Epstein's uh, sex crimes, right? I mean, like, just there's so much to, to glom onto here um, about how the president is just not on the level. Um, I'd like to see them use that phrase. You know, the president of the United States is not on the level. Um, we, and the Mueller report proves that he is not on the level. Okay? So we don't need to get into a debate about, you know, w- whether the president committed a crime. You know, um, I think that the report will detail uh, crimes committed by the president of the United States. All right. Now, before I let you get out the door, uh, this is going to be a recurring question. Uh, whenever you're here, as we head down to 2020, at least until we head down to the Democratic uh, uh, convention, uh, who, which one of the candidates running on the Democratic side? I think there's 16 of it. Is it D? I forget the exact number. Uh, and I could not pass a test and name them all, so don't even ask me. But which of the 16 uh, at this moment excite you the most to give you a sense of hope? Oh, man, that's a tough question because I've really... I made a decision when it started that I, I wasn't going to make a choice until I had heard a bunch of debates at least mm-hmm. um, so that I could I could sort of sort through my feelings about all these candidates. The person that I most want to be president is Elizabeth Warren. Um, I think that Elizabeth Warren has the best policy ideas out of anybody in the field. She has a lot of really creative and really interesting ideas about how to get around some of the most problematic aspects of, of corruption. In, in our system and the, and the way that it enriches people and the way that it leads to, to greater inequality. I, you know, I personally find some of those ideas more appealing than the sort of like 1950s era, the social democratic platform of Bernie Sanders, a lot of which I like, but I, I don't think it's as innovative as, as, as Warren's is. Um, <clears throat> the problem is that, you know, for reasons that probably have a lot to do with, with sexism and misogyny, she's just not getting the kind of audience that some of these other candidates are getting. 
Um, and I, you know, I like, I like the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. He seems like a nice guy. Um, but the fact that he's out polling Elizabeth Warren <laughs> just says something about, it says something about all of us. And so, um, so again, the person, the person whose policies I like the most is Elizabeth Warren. Um, that said, our primary is in, in March of next year. Yeah. You know, and if I see a candidate that's polling seven, eight, nine points better than the rest of the field, I'm going to take a long look at that person, even if I think I have other problems with them. You know, if that's Bernie Sanders, then I, then I may vote for Bernie Sanders. Yeah. In um, other words, you're going, to be, you're going to be a strategic, pragmatic, uh, democratic voter. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You can't just look at the polls, but I think you have to take a holistic picture of, you know, we, we have to win this election. Right. You know, I, I really would prefer it not be Joe Biden, but <laughs> I know. think you're going to get your wish. I just have a, uh, a funny feeling. Anyway, yeah, uh, David Ferris is my guest, uh, professor of political science at Roosevelt. It's time to fight dirty. That's the name of his books, folks. You can uh, track it down at a bookstore or on the Internet or just go out to the Chicago Public Library and check it out. Uh, David, it's always a blast talking politics with you. Get you back in a month and see what the world looks like. All right. I would love to be here again. It's always a good time. All right. Very By the good. way, there's 17 candidates. 17? Frank, Frank yesterday told us about this Tim Ryan guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tim Ryan. Yeah. The guy that failed to take down Nancy Pelosi. Uh, yes. That guy. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> Come on, Tim. You're not winning me over. I love yeah. Nancy Pelosi. All Maybe right. Maybe win a leadership election first <laughs> yeah. before a presidency. Before a presidency. Uh, uh, David Ferris is my guest. Joanna Klonsky before him. She did a great job. And Ramana Hussein, uh, always fantastic. The Ramana Rundown every Friday. And of course, the man, the myth, the legend behind the board, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. The ladies all love him for his body and his mind. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. I'll take it. <laughs> Have a great weekend, everybody. See you Tuesday. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows at chicagoreader.com, chicago.suntimes.com, and wherever you download your favorite podcasts. If you've already downloaded this, hey, guess what? We do the show live 1 until 3 p.m. Tuesdays through Fridays. We say 3 p.m., but usually we keep it a little longer like we just did with David Ferris there. Also, remember, we're having a caption contest. Head over to the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook page. Leave us your caption. We'll announce our winner on Tuesday.